welcome! Live from NPCR Radio, I'm Snodley Bowman. Today, on Non-Player Character Radio, we talk about the Goblin King's new sweeping anti-adventurer legislation that should bring an end to the murder hobo menace. But now, this show... Bother. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hi, this is Bob 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 Vila. And now, it's time for the show. This old dungeon. The show where grognards go to get their grog on. Between the two of us, we're gonna get a lot of stuff done. We're gonna kick some ass. We're gonna be awesome. Featuring your hosts! Hi, this is Bill Barsh. I am the managing director of Paysetter Games and Simulations. Look at this. It's a plumber's nightmare. Hi, this is Edwin. I'm a longtime cast member of Skype of Cthulhu, and I am the 5e editor for Frog God Games. Somebody here call a carpenter? This is Lou Alu. I could charitably call myself a game designer and game publisher, but definitely a veteran role player of 35 plus years. We work on it the rest of the night. We get it together. We can do this, right? There's no way in hell we can do it. We need to record audio online. Uh, Zoom audio should be fine. Uh, I've never done it, you know, with a guest overseas, but I assume it's going to turn out the same. I hope. I think it should be okay. Okay. So, how are you, man? I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I have been. Uh, uh, the school year is beginning again here, so uh, I've had uh, I've had a busy uh, week. Uh, but uh, are you at the yeah. collegiate level or? Uh, one of my uh one of one of my many jo- I, so someone asked me what i do for a living and i could only answer by saying oops all side hustles um <laughs> you know uh but uh but one of them is uh i i do some part-time teaching and tutoring so these are like teenagers mostly like 16 to 17 years old oh, yeah. um, Get a few so, of those. <laughs> yeah um and uh yeah they're they're back at it and they're uh uh especially my ones who are entering their final year are uh are, are starting to lose their minds with anxiety. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I've been, I've been trying to manage a few of them, um, but it's nice, you know, nice to be back. Um, but yeah, that's been, that's been my week. Uh, that and, uh, uh, yeah, no, pretty much that. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a teacher, but I'm at a middle school level and, uh, what do you uh, teach? Uh, I'm a special educator. So I work, I work with kids with emotional disabilities, but specifically I teach science and math. Uh-huh. And uh, I do this with a partnership of a couple other teachers and everybody was out this last week. They either had like something scheduled or two of them got sick. And so it was a nightmare. It was, it was the, the longest four day week of my life. Cause we had labor day, you know? So, Oh yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm glad to be here though, man. This, this is, uh, I was looking forward to this all week. This is what got me through, man. So. Well, I hope that I am uh, prepared. <laughs> there is no prepared for the show. I've been, are, I've been making notes. We're just wherever we want to be at the time. So don't you worry about it, man. <laughs> um, so I got to say, I, I, I mean, you got such a huge catalog. I think I started listening to your show 
I want to say uh, maybe middle June, late June. And I'm still now just getting through monster manual too. <laughs> and yeah. that's not even like oh, a third of what you got. <laughs> there are, there are. Yeah. You know, uh, like I think, I, and, and I, my, like the numbering is stupid. Cause I decided a long time ago that I wasn't going to number special episodes. And then like, I'm just too, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to go back and change it. So there's, yeah, there's like 700 <laughs> episodes wow. of the show or something stupid like that. Jeez. Yeah. It's a little out of control. I, 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 I had a guy the other day, so I had a special episode request, and the guy's like, oh, I want you to do the kitsune, but I heard you'd already done it. And I was like, did I? <laughs> I had to go back and like search through the art. Like, have I? I have no idea. <laughs> um, you know, I don't yeah. think I have, but I'm terrified that one day, like, uh-huh. we did oh, the heartbeat yeah. recently, and that someone will email me and go, you did that one already. You have done this once or twice. I was in a conversation yesterday with somebody who had gotten their adventure reviewed twice by the same person <laughs> and the same person review not what? what did they come out with the same uh apparently same they did come out with or... similar oh, okay. uh similar reviews but well that's I okay not i remember having done it the first time i think yeah. i heard something like that with uh, siskel and ebert how there was a movie that they reviewed once and then like on some sort of special show or whatever they reviewed again but they had like a totally different review the second time through i don't know i um, think they, they uh actually that might have been star wars it could they, have been. I they, think it was something pretty they, famous. They hammered it when it first came out. Like, oh, this is a bunch of garbage. No one's ever going to watch <laughs> this. And yeah, there's a lot of movement. And I wouldn't doubt that would have been the case. That rings a bell. Because, I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, to think way back when Star Wars came out, you know, was 76, 77, whatever 77, it was. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't hyped. No. Like, people think it would have been it really wasn't and, there's a uh, there's a great entry um on star wars in the psychotronic video guide which okay. must be like 1981 or something like quite quite yeah. early in the and and it listed you know among like oh here are the kind of like science fiction films and it describes you know featuring harrison ford parentheses zabriskie point close parentheses like <laughs> who? who is oh, the guy from zabriskie point yeah right right um <laughs> like yeah uh just uh it's it's always strange to see those kinds of things um when you know when something's brand new and no one really knows what they're supposed to how they're supposed to feel about it uh right exactly and i I, you know star wars was like a prime example it's like it just it just didn't get press like like you know you think it would have got it just didn't because it was so different and i don't think anyone knew what was going to happen whether it was going to make it or just flop and then Obviously, you know, there were lines wrapped around the theaters the first week it was out. And that's when everyone jumped on board and said, well, now this is awesome. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Lou, well, I, I hope that... you'll change your mind and actually just make this the episode because I know we're not going to be any better than this. Because we're going to, yeah. Well, let's just, we'll, we'll just say, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so, folks, what you've been listening to <laughs> is, is uh, this month's episode of This Old Dungeon. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Lou Al Lou. Hey, this is Edwin here. Happy to be here. Hey, guys, it's Bill. And uh, we have the uh, just amazing honor of having the monster man, James Holloway. <laughs> James, how are you doing tonight? Uh, great. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. I know that, you know, there's uh, what, like, is it a five hour difference between us and you or? Uh, that depends where you are, but. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, East that's Coast, yeah. East Coast. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's five hours. So, it's, I okay. mean, it's just it's just after dinner here. <laughs> okay. Um, so 
I know I got a thousand questions for you. And I know Edwin, you're the one that kind of, you know, turned me on to his podcast and made me aware of it. So uh, we'll just get started asking you some stuff here. Uh, how'd you get in a hobby? Uh, okay. So I, I don't know. I feel like th this is maybe like a, a, a myth version of the story that I told myself, but, uh, <laughs> when I was about seven or eight, I was, and this is sort of, this is in kind of like the mid 1980s. Um, I was at summer camp and there was a, one of the counselors was playing this game and I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I was fascinated by it. <laughs> and I, I had sort of been aware that role-playing games existed and that I was interested in them, but I, I didn't really know what they were or, or, or anything, right? And so it was uh, Tunnels and Trolls. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember for some reason we had tons of sheets of graph paper. So that was kind of the only resource we had. We didn't have dice or anything like that. So uh, arguably we weren't really playing the game, but I... I got very obsessed with the idea. And then sometime later, I prevailed on my parents to take me to the game store. In town. Well, actually, this was kind of like the that like D&D craze era. So there were actually a couple of game stores in my uh, suburban American town, but they didn't have Tunnels and Trolls, which is the game that I wanted. But uh, not willing to walk out empty-handed, I picked up the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness yeah. role-playing game. So that was the first role-playing game I ever owned. Um, and uh, I used to play it, you know, with my friends in the school library at lunch. And uh, really, I've just been, you know, I've been gaming ever since. But it does make me one of those weird people who I actually didn't play Dungeons and Dragons at all. Um, you know, I went from that to, and I played Tunnels and Trolls, and I played Marvel Superheroes, and we played other Palladium games. And uh, then from there to Call of Cthulhu and Paranoia, and then in the 90s to the World of Darkness. And it wasn't until 3rd Edition came out that I played... D, D wow. for the first time which time i was in my 20s you know um, yeah that's an anomaly so, man wow yeah it is i mean i think for the overwhelming majority of people D, D is the first role-playing game they play right but mm -hmm. uh but uh, not for me kind of oddly um so yeah that's kind of how i got into it. i've just sort of been here ever since you know um it's uh i i can't uh i, I read all these um you know there's this story of like the deep freeze right like you know you 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 go to college and then you sort of stop gaming for a while and then people kind of like get back into it um later on in life and i that never happened to me i mean uh, i met my wife through role-playing you know that's 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 how we got together so uh you can't hear that that was a shrug <laughs> <laughs> uh so uh, what i find kind of interesting there is you, you start off with tunnels and trolls and that, and that was yeah. when you were here in america right yeah that's right so i grew up in in california but i mean uh, like the suggestion I, I, like i think what you're getting at is that tunnels and trolls was huge in the uk right yeah much, yeah, yeah. Much, maybe much more so than it was ever yeah yeah. Um, in the US. Yeah. And in fact, the edition I had was so the, the UK uh, digest size paperback was sold as part of a box set in the US. So that's the one I had with the, the Josh Kirby uh, front cover illustration. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's who it's by anyway. I Maybe it's right. a, is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Whew. <laughs> Credibility <laughs> preserved, folks. At least that's that's my that's my recollection. Yeah, I mean, that's same here. I, I don't own it, but that's what I remember. Yeah. A lot of people had that actually have that copy so have, yeah i right. still i still have indeed that actual one um more tape than book uh, <laughs> at this point yeah. you described a lot of my rpg collection there uh yes certainly <laughs> all right uh, so yeah i was going to go there with the tunnels of trolls thing before lou jumped in that but because so you started with third edition dnd &D. yeah uh where'd you go from there did you go backwards did you go forward or did you so, just stick to three i so i played third for a while um, and then I kind of dropped out of it. It wasn't, it wasn't a game that I ran all that much, but just like I played in games that my friends are running. 
Um, when I moved to the UK in the, I've been back and forth. I'm, I'm from the UK, but I lived, I grew up in the US and I've been back and forth for a long time. And now we're kind of here permanently. But um, when we moved back here in the mid 2000s, um, I had I was not playing D&D at all. I was running um, you know, Hero Quest, and I ran an Unknown Armies game and the Esoterrorists mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And then some friends of mine asked me to run a D&D game. And at that point, the only game I had played was Third. And that was also the one that they were... Fourth was out by this time, I think. Um, but they were all very... They, they were the same as me. They had never made the transition to Fourth. Um, you know, I wasn't playing at all. So, of course, I didn't make the transition. Mm-hmm. So I ran Third until fifth came out um and by the time fifth came out i was and and uh, like i respect that there's a lot of good things about third edition but i was sick to the back teeth of it like (laughs) there's something to me i have that kind of mentality where even though i know that what i should just do is say oh well the ice is slippery uh i don't know make a dex roll or something like that the fact that there are slippery ice rules in there somewhere (laughs) and i don't know what they are bothers me um so it was just i was just like trying to stat up all of these like npcs and things and it's actually a lot of work and it was really kind of getting on my nerves um so then i switched to fifth from there i sort of explored like i played um i have some friends back in the u.s that i played in an ADD first game with um i uh, played some labyrinth lord um and uh when and after hearing old school essentials recommended to me by um a bunch of friends I think that's kind of like my my home edition now. Like that's the one that I feel like I've settled on. I think it yep. combines like the simplicity that's really appealing to me with being presented in a way that's very accessible. Um, and uh, and it doesn't hurt that a lot of the players in my group now that I run OSC for are also people, well, not that they are people, I'm not, who have a lot of like nostalgic fondness for BX uh, from when they were kids. Mm-hmm. So how, it really, it, it combines a couple of those things. How big is OSC over in the uk i mean because gavin's from there right the, yeah the i think yeah it's it's hard to measure i i would say that that it is pretty big like uh-huh. um i i certainly hear a lot of people complaining about um the challenges that like 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 when they had the big kickstarter and it was sort of um you know uh, the, i believe they talked about opening up uk and eu stores and they they either are about to or just have i don't know but for a while it was you know more expensive to get them here and i think a lot really? of people were irritated by I that i guess i but, didn't realize that yeah well because the shipping is uh-huh. i just I, I, in my but, mind i always suppose that he's got one outlet in the, the united states going and then he had his own thing going on you know over in europe but yeah i don't i don't quite know how it all works but my understanding is that that you know the idea is that at some point they'll have Okay. Uh, a separate distribution thing get, get around some of the customers problems i don't i don't really know the details but uh i would say it's pretty popular i, I get like um the the scene in terms of like people producing things for it certainly seems pretty lively and i, I would say it is probably the best known of the mm-hmm. of the retro clones which you know maybe like being you know the longest hamster or whatever like it maybe not <laughs> that's not very no, much it, necessarily it, it, well, they caught lightning in a bottle with that last Kickstarter, right? I, I think so. Before yeah. that. And then, you know, it, it went from doing, you know, middle tens of thousands, you know, in a Kickstarter, you know, 30, 40, 50, wherever it was doing with BX. And then when it hit OSC, you know, it just absolutely exploded, right? I mean, it went to, I don't know, three quarters of a million dollars, right? I believe something, so. Yeah. Seven, seven something. I, something. So. I don't I mean, recall, it, but it was certainly a lot. It was a lot. There's, there's no other retro clone that is in that world. Not even nothing. Nothing's even close. 
um, you know, I don't consider Pathfinder, for example, a retro clone, right? So <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing close, like, you know, Labyrinth Lord oh. or, or uh, you know, uh, Swords and Wizardry never even touched that hemisphere, um, which is fascinating. But yeah, I, I'm not sure about the whole printing dynamic with them either, because I always thought that those books all came out of mainland Europe and got shipped to the U.S. I'm, I could be 100% well, wrong I, with that. I, I don't I know, know in the U.S. it's all through Exalted Funeral. Um, yeah, right. Right. But I but always I'm, assumed that was just a licensee deal. I didn't realize that that's, you know, well, I'm not maybe, sure whether maybe, maybe maybe this is just people from from, you know, yeah. complaining about about finding it hard to find a retailers now. I don't know. I don't yeah. like I um, I picked him up, I think, from Exalted Funeral or I, I, I got the i backed the the one of the kickstarters to be honest with you i find the edition like stuff a little confusing yeah maybe you know <laughs> don't don't take any of the shipping advice from me I, I ordered them a while ago and i don't remember anything about it so uh, yeah. but i it, it seems to me that it is popular in the uk i guess is what i'm trying to say um that that we uh, get us back on track we, we need this guy on our podcast <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we were going this way and boom we're right, right back there <laughs> Well, that's a fascinating topic. I mean, it's one we should probably go back to at some point. Yeah. Uh, so not, shipping. Not today, but, but not shipping, but I'm <laughs> shipping is a fascinating topic. I mean, you know, with Frog God, how fascinating that topic. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we're not going to go there. We did a whole Kickstarter thing last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to beat on that dead horse there. Yeah. No, um, we're going we're gonna to avoid that. Like so if, if you're, you're getting back in uh, third edition, then you get to OSC. Um, where, where's the monster man podcast coming into this? Like, how do, how do you get to be in like, well, let's go check out this first edition thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's nothing to do with any of it. Like, so <laughs> I had played a little AD&D first by the time that I, I mean, and I mean like three or four sessions, you know, uh, these are friends from my old hometown. And when I'm visit, like I sit in on their game. Um, but, uh, and, but, but actually how I wound up, um doing monster man is this is going to sound like an like so there's there's sort of two aspects to it the first and the simplest is that it came to me in a dream um (laughs) now that's not quite right but i i do tend to have ideas for projects when i have just woken up and sometimes they appear quite fully formed and so i woke up one morning and i said to myself out loud i'm going to do a podcast where every episode is i do a monster from the monster manual and it's going to be called monster man Right. And I and I had the logo in my mind where it's just the monster manual and then the UL is taken off. Um, and that's the like funny version of the story. The reality is actually inspired by another podcast. So there used to be another one of these very short, very frequent. Because if, if if listeners, if you don't know, each episode of Monster Man is like 10 to 20 minutes long. Sometimes not even that. And I was listening to this podcast that came out every day, but the episodes were like 10 minutes long. And it was about every episode the guy would read another issue of uh the amazing spider-man starting with amazing fantasy number 15 and just going now it didn't last very long but i liked the concept and i loved the title which was the amazing amazing spider-man man um <laughs> and uh I, I really enjoyed and i thought that that you know i had previously I, this is not my first podcast i did have a, a another podcast called pledge break with my friend um jesse merlin who's a uh, an actor um and uh, if you've seen uh, like he's in a lot of weird horror films, he's in um, uh, Beyond the Gates. If you've seen that, he was in Heller, Helen Keller versus Nightwolves. Um, you know, but so um, but so he he and excuse I excuse me, we, listeners, I gotta get a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, we bonded as kids through our love of uh, Doctor Who, 
um you know like uh, we're at that age where all kids are either star trek or star wars kids and we were doctor who kids so we were kind of like slightly i mean <laughs> and i say all either star trek or star wars they're all star wars but you know what i mean um but so but those episodes were very long they were like an hour to two hours it was a very discussion heavy like um uh sort of it was about uh, we only did historical episodes and we would do like a whole background on the history that it was based on and the editing took absolutely forever it took so long like it and and the files were huge and my old computer would crash huh. and i I, could, I didn't know how to balance the levels well like i didn't know anything about producing audio i mean i still kind of don't and the it was just it was so much work and i thought so i i, I recoiled against that and decided to do a very short thing <laughs> and and even though i like i don't think that the uh that the edition really matters so much because to me i think the monster manual is foundational to a whole genre of uh, of rpg books and indeed mm-hmm. a lot of the way that we as a culture think about monsters because of the effect that it has had on other media on things like video games um you know the idea that there is a meaningful distinction between a goblin and a bugbear for instance right <laughs> those are just words that mean evil spirit mm-hmm. or bad creature right they're not you know that this the, the whole way that the that the genre thinks about it is very much determined by the monster manual whether you play first edition AD&D or not right um and so to me it's it's the most interesting monster book but it's also the book that has the most it has a lot of connection to other subjects that I'm interested in so to mythology or to oh, folklore yeah. or whatever right so to me that seemed like kind of an obvious uh, starting place that had the the con- that conveniently like could be broken down into little bits right because it's full of little short entries it really suited the frequent but short podcast format awesome um yeah i, I love the format of, of the show honestly i think it, it, it's great because as as a designer i put my designer hat on i mean i love just flipping through monster books or in this case listening to a, a podcast because the, I look at monsters, I think a little bit differently. Sometimes as a designer, is I like to let monsters kind of inspire me, and by taking what what's written down there, but but I always like kind of twisting things or taking it a little bit out of what you would think, right? Um, mm. In a situation, just kind of um, get taking the cliche out of the monster a little bit and and putting it out of the box. And I think just even flipping through or hearing podcasts like yours is very inspirational. I think it absolutely could be. So everyone out there, if you're not listening, you really do need to take a listen because it will it will inspire you to do things that um, you could just take a very normal creature sometimes that people are just tired of using and put them in a whole other context. And that that changes it without you don't need to worry about the stats necessarily. So I kind of getting back to your point of taking you can use the master manual first system master manual to be inspired to do anything for any version of DD. Right. So uh, you talk about a mummy and all of a sudden you can go all kinds of different ways with it. So um, I think that's uh, that's how I look at it. That's my perspective on it and how I like to use things like that. Well, that's definitely kind of what I'm aiming for. Right. I think I think the point about it being inspiration is exactly right. That that, I'm you know, I'm not concerned about the game specifically. Indeed, there are times when I have to kind of go, well, I also think it's an interesting way to learn about the history of the game. So there are, there are, I mean, and we'll come to this later because I know we're going to talk about the Fiend Folio, which I think is very interesting from a sort of historical perspective. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. And uh, and I think we're going to see uh, some stuff about kind of 
how the game was played and perhaps how the game was played in ways that nobody was really anticipating. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's, so to me there's, things that, there's things in a monster manual that are fascinating that people have probably skipped by for long, you know, maybe they've never even looked at it. First three, four, five, six, seven, eight pages of that book, there's stuff in there that people probably just zip right by because you want to get to the monsters, right? But the, the only section in AD&D, first AD&D, that actually talks about magic resistance is actually in the monster manual. It doesn't even exist in the DM's guide. You know, that that I recall anyway, I don't, I don't even think it does. But the section on magic resistance, for example, of how it works and and what it actually does is in the monster manual. And well, it's very easy to skip by that. Um, you know, uh, I think high, like uh, intelligence beyond 18 or something or strength beyond 18 is also in there. Yeah. There's stuff in there that's fascinating that has nothing to do with actual monsters. It makes it a great book, but it feeds into everything I think that you're talking about with with going through and you know you pick a monster that has magic resistance for example people just i believe me everyone who's ever played magic resistance is probably playing it wrong because they're just making an assumption of what it is rather than what it actually does yeah Um, because why would you think to look for it in the introduction to the monster book (laughs) exactly (laughs) you're gonna go read rules when you just just have a number yeah exactly and i think that's something i've really gained by listening to your podcast uh james is that you know um the, the monster manual especially the first one wasn't just a book of monsters but it was an extension of rules is another way for tsr to get some rules out there that hadn't been published yet uh to refine some things well none of the rules have been published yet right monster manual well, yeah, yeah, for book. the first edition yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. monster manual comes out before anything else yeah um so yeah it's kind of what and in some ways it's kind of the transitional document right that's supposed mm-hmm. to lead D mm-hmm. players into playing ad and d um Although whether they did or not, that's another story, right? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, so I mean, and we started with Monster Manual, and then, uh, and then I, I actually, I, I'm sometimes tempted to go back to it because I went through it very quickly. Like I think the pace of the show has slowed down in some ways, um, and so there's creatures that I feel like maybe I haven't done justice. But it's in, it's interesting you say that because I feel like one of the things that's happening now is that you have so many creatures that you're treating for the third, fourth time. And so it feels like some of your, like some of it, we're just racing along. You know, it's like, oh, we did this one seven times. I'm moving on to the next one. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you think that you're moving more slowly. Well, I think, I think, you're, I mean, that's true. For some of them, I do think that like I, I'm actually seeing more. So to, for, to give some context to what uh, anyone's saying. So we're now on our fifth. I don't really delineate them, but I think of them as seasons. And we're on the fifth one now. So we've done... The three core AD&D first edition monster books. So Monster Manual, Fiend Folio, and Monster Manual 2. Then we did uh, Creature Catalog, which is uh, for BX. Um, mm-hmm. There is also a version for the, the later uh, Beck Me, but we, but we did the, the original one, the British one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now we're on Monstrous Manual, the 1993 um, uh, compilation edition, of monsters yeah. for... The uh, compilation book, yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 based on the Monsters Compendium, um, and the reason that we're doing Monsters Manual and not Monsters Compendium is that I didn't find a copy of Monsters Compendium uh, in a secondhand bookstore for one ninety nine. Um, <laughs> well, not just that, but you got to hunt down all the volumes, and there's like I think seven yeah. of the the loose leaf ones. And... They are available online these days. So oh, yeah. I, I, I've I've promised nice. that maybe for a future season we'll do one of some of the weirder ones, like we'll do like Dark Sun or Spelljammer <laughs> or something, like just to maybe particularly I think with Spelljammer, kind of uh, obviously they announced that there's going to be yeah. a, a fifth edition. Well, not even announced; it's yeah. out, I believe. But um, yeah. uh. So, you know, maybe maybe we'll go ahead and take a look at those. But we're still only on P, so 
you know, we got a way to go in uh, in Monsters Manual. Well, I can kind of attest because since I just recently got into your podcast, uh, I've gotten through Monster Manual 1, Fiend Folio. I'm almost through uh, Monster Manual 2. And I do feel like, you know, for the first season, uh, there it seemed to me like a lot of times we're getting four, maybe five monsters each episode. Yeah. And then you kind of decided to go to the like one, well, not one, uh, two, three monster setups unless they were like collections you know giants or whatever yeah so i do feel like it's it's slowed down to where i'm at right now now you know beyond that i don't know and i felt like there were creatures that i was doing in disservice so like people kept pointing out to me things that sort of um yeah maybe i had missed but also some of those episodes are longer i think my i think my average length has got shorter so um so that's another kind of reason for it um but yeah so monsters monsters manual yes i do keep running it like yeah this is uh, an orc well we've done orcs you know um well, what do you is, think uh, about uh woodland trickster monsters <laughs> <laughs> yeah loves them loves them we're gonna I, I, listen i mean i accept that they need to exist but like if we could just have one um i think that that would be fantastic if you give me one woodland trickster monster and one little guy that lives in a hole in a dungeon and like steals your iron rations i feel like i fine. feel like you need a trickster monster and a human and you're pretty much done i do i do also ask why couldn't this be a human quite a lot yeah yeah one of the things i've been uh trying to think about uh, as i listen to your podcast over the years is uh your i I sort of like to picture your prep and i have absolutely no idea what it's like because i feel like uh, some of your uh presentation feels very um Deep dive. on the spot and some of it feels like you've obviously done a lot of research and spent a lot mm-hmm. of time and i also one of the things i'm more, mostly curious about is i guess two really one is what is sort of your research model because certainly for the special episodes you obviously dig in a lot and obviously for the religious um for the patron yeah, deities you dig in a ton um but i'm curious because some of the most inspirational stuff back to, to that thought is really about how how you're using monsters or how you might use the monster and i'm wondering how much of that is you know you sort of go for a walk with the dog and i know tomorrow i need to present on blank let me think about some cool stuff i could do with ogres and yeah it's a mixture so it, and i try particularly in the longer episodes the special episodes which are requested by uh patrons um i, I try to balance them right because i don't want to just and I think maybe early on, so like if you think if you look at like the Sphinx special episode, I don't talk very much about what do you actually do with a Sphinx in D&D, right? It's mostly just me looking at the mythology mm-hmm. um, and, and looking at the history of, of Sphinxes or Sphinges um, in, uh, in art. And, um, and now I try to break it down. I definitely have sections, right? So it's planned to some extent that specials in particular, I go, what, what, do we, what have we seen about this monster before? What's the mythological origin of this monster? How would you use this monster in a game? Like, what kind of changes do you make to it, right? And that's sort of, I follow that outline. That's not as true for um, for a regular episode because typically I find that most monsters will, will will kind of tell you what's the thing that they're about, if that makes sense. So, like, if you look at the creature, you know, um, you know, maybe the standout feature of this is that it's got a great Tony Deterlitzi illustration, <laughs> you know, like a lot of the time in Monstrous Manual, that's kind of what you got to work with. Like, yeah, it's a Noel. Looks great, though. Um, and uh, 
or sometimes it's it's some like mechanical thing or sometimes like the half orcs is the weird stuff about heredity or sometimes you know it, it could be anything but a lot of the time each monster will have sort of like one to me anyway standout feature mm. um or i think about how to use it so like a lot of the time um early books but not so much later ones tend to have a lot of kind of hazard monsters um which are creatures like uh, to pick an example the bloodworm comma giant which is not really all that dangerous if you're cautious but so you kind of like you go through this room and it's got bloodworms comma giant in it and you're like eh, these are no big deal and then later on when you're being pursued by bugbears and you realize you've got to run through the room with the giant bloodworms in it and you think oh actually this could be a problem <laughs> um and i think that as later AD&D moved toward the more like series of walkways connecting fight rectangles mode of <laughs> adventure design those kinds of monsters that rely on a living interacting dungeon kind of died out they're harder to use it's much harder to anticipate the uses of the giant bloodworm than it is the green dragon right the green dragon is a big set piece all by itself you know what it's for mm -hmm. and so to me I, I try, not always successfully, but I try when I see one of these monsters where I'm like, I don't really get what this guy's deal is, to think, well, it must have one. Um, you know, and if it doesn't, I guess I can try to make one up for it. And I'm sometimes successful and sometimes not so much. Still not sure what to do with the gumbato. Like there are kind of goof monsters, you know, there's some that there's some that to me are not, or or they anticipate a situation that doesn't actually come up very much. Um uh, that seems like another common one. Uh, but well, I mean, but maybe my experience is different, right? Maybe, maybe in fact, it does come up all the time and I'm just wrong. So I try to just look at the thing and, and think about what is the feature that stands out to me. And usually I can find, you know, five or six minutes on whatever that one feature is. And sometimes that means that things get left out. So there's stuff about some of these, you know, these monsters that I could talk about in more detail. Like we, I just recorded, it just came out the other day. We did a death night, um, episode. And honestly, like I could have. I could have done another 20 minutes probably oh. um, like there's so much to think about with that character because it's so rooted in uh, these extant like literary and artistic ideas about chivalry or, about, you know, what, what happens when the good guys go bad. Um, maybe another 20 minutes, but, but I could do at least another 10. And um, do, you, do you manage to not read forward? Like, I feel like, it would be really frustrating for me to be like, okay, I'm going to read this paragraph or this page or this half page. And then I'm going to stop until three days later when I'm going to go back to, you know, the next thing that, but that's just sort of your, what you're doing. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the method. That's awesome. it's, it's easier for some than others. Obviously I had read the monster manual, but like right. who reads the monster manual, right? Nobody sits down and reads <laughs> well, the 10, ten, ten year olds, kid. Ten year olds yeah. read ten the monster no manual. No. Right. No, that's actually, I, yes, I agree with that. Um, and so th that I think is really interesting when you think about the different ways of reading this. So I, I, I mean, it's no secret that I don't like the way monsters manual is presented. Um, it, it's very, very overwritten in my eyes. Most of the entries are far longer than they need to be. And that's because of that editorial, I assume, because of that editorial mandate that each entry has to be a page long. It can't yeah, be two I, entries I, on I one page. I can speak to that because I'm, I'm actually, my publishing company, uh, we're putting out a monster book here where it's, it's a smaller size. We're basically kind of doing the monster's compendium thing. It's a journal size and every entry has to be part of a front page minus the stats and illustration an entire back page mm -hmm. and uh you know you either got to stretch it or you got to compress it one or the other because yes. it's got to fit but it's typically more interesting when you compress it i don't know yes. um <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> but so 
but so uh for those um well i don't know what i was saying about this um oh, i'm so sorry oh, not reading out, no that's it okay but so i think that the one of the advantages that that format has is that you really do genuinely only need that thing right it has all this stuff in front of you it has all the rules for this creature in front of you there's like there must be 10 different rule sets for getting swallowed in ad and yeah. i mean i'm not even make that's not an exaggeration there must be 10 and they're not the same as each other but it doesn't matter because nobody cares about rules consistency between monsters that's genuinely not important um so if you're wandering around you know shallow temperate seas when you get swallowed by a giant manta ray or something like it's just nice to have those rules in front of you on that page mm -hmm. but for me reading one entry after another sequentially it's extremely boring <laughs> and that's I, and i have to remember that that's because i'm reading this book in a way that it was absolutely not intended to be read correct right it's like not for that purpose and so i have to kind of hide my frustration like it's like if you decided to read the encyclopedia from start to finish like right. You would yeah. find it confusing. Like it wouldn't. Well, maybe it would be fun, but I, I, I don't know. You, <laughs> no, you're kind of fun, right? <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't think we did this, and I know we're we're already way into this. Yeah. What is the actual name of your podcast for our listeners who do not know? Because oh, I don't it's think called Monster Man. Great. Uh, I, I, I know. I, I mean, I knew the answer, but I don't think we actually <laughs> said it in the very beginning. Oh, that's we fair. Announced yeah, you yeah. as the Monster Man, but I want to make sure that. That's true. Yeah, the, know what they're gonna go look. The podcast for. is called Monster Man. Uh, the spinoff is for uh, and where, where, where are they gonna find it at? Uh, you can find it at uh, monsterman.libsyn.com. Um, honestly, if you just Google Monster Man podcast, yeah. you'll find it. Um, uh, yes. So wh wherever you get your podcasts, just type Monster Man into the search box, and it should come up. Um, yeah, that's such a good, that's a good point. I don't think we said. <laughs> and go ahead. I know, I know you're saying it, but uh, just so I get a clear audio clip of it. Uh, and then aside from Monster Man, you have? Oh, uh, Patron Deities is my spinoff uh, podcast. It's for my patrons, hence the name. Um, and it's the same. It was actually, I'll say this. It was originally the same deal, but for deities and demigods. Um, and then we, I actually finished all of the like real world pantheons in deities and demigods. So now we're trying to give the, well, maybe a, hopefully a little bit better than the deities and demigods treatment to other pantheons. So we just finished doing a season on uh, Hawaiian mythology, for example. Oh, wow. Um, wow. You know, what if, what if, uh, so, you know, what if they had decided to do deities and demigods too? And I was, you know, we're going to do Hawaiian and the next one, I, the, the poll is still open, but it looks like the next season is going to be about uh, Tengrism, which is the, uh, the, the religion of uh, a lot of medieval Central Asia. So Genghis oh, Khan wow. was a Tengrist, for instance, um, and about which I know nothing. Um, <laughs> yes. Right. Other than there's a sky god <laughs> called Tengri, I know that much. Um, but yeah, I, and I learn a lot as I do it. You know, I didn't know that much about Hawaiian mythology either. Um, <laughs> and now I'm much more aware of how little I know, um, <laughs> which kind of the effect, but uh, you know, it's good fun. Well, you have, you have, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you are also professionally trained to not know about these things. That's true. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I have a PhD in archaeology and specifically I did study, um, uh, burial rites, right. Burial practice. So that, that was kind of my, um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I begin with a high level of awareness of how little I know. Yeah. I, I have to afford myself <laughs> this, this tangent here. Um, when you went into school, like what, what were you thinking? I mean, were you like, I'm going to be Indiana Jones. I'm going to be going through the tombs or, or um, you know, how did you get into that? A little bit. I, I actually started out in history um, and I started out as a, a modern historian. So I started out doing kind of 19th to 20th century um, and particularly 20th century sort of international relations stuff. Okay. And I 
it was kind of by coincidence. I was going to do um, as a, as an undergrad. I, I I you had to choose like a special paper, you know, for your final year. There's a special topic that you can do, and for various reasons, I registered for mine very late. And the one that I really wanted, which is the same one that everybody wanted, which was the history of spying, um, uh, was taken. And so I looked like it was full. And so I looked at the other ones and I went, oh, the Vikings in Europe, that sounds like fun. And so I signed up for this course on the Vikings in Europe and uh, my mind was blown. Like just in terms of the, the I mean, the, the fascinating methodological questions, like, cause it's a subject that you think, you know, we know a lot about uh-huh. and then you get into it. And you're like, oh, actually it's, it can be quite mysterious. The sources are complex. We're mixing history and archeology span in terms of the evidence. Um, and, uh, and from then on, I, I decided I was an early medievalist, um, and I, I crossed over and did an MA in archeology. span Uh, so I don't think that I, I, I've always been kind of like a weird somewhere between an archeologist and historian really, but, uh, but as for the Indiana Jones thing, I, I was on field work in Denmark once when I was doing my MA and I had a big broad brimmed hat. Um, <laughs> and everybody was like, <laughs> Look at this nerd, you know, and I, that one day we're, we're out digging in this uh, sort of sandy environment in this, in this, uh, this island in Denmark, and it starts raining and having bright sunshine at the same time. Uh, and I look over at these other people who don't have big broad brim hats <laughs> and I'm just like, all right, suckers, you know, you thought I was stupid, but guess what? Um, so, so yeah, so my, I don't know that my ambition was, um, Although in fairness, I did put on uh, like my high school, you know, careers forms or whatever. I did put archaeologist and that was entirely because of like Call of Cthulhu. Mm. Um, like I had no particular reason. I just didn't know what to say. So that's what I put. I want to do something that's going to blow my mind and end up with me in some serious trouble. I'm <laughs> yeah. <archaeology>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to give away the, the source of your power here, but what are some good sources for people to turn to that want to try to get that, that mythological background or the historical background on some of the monsters from D and D do you have a a go-to source? I don't have like, I don't have one. I I would say, you know, we're probably in a golden age um, as far as the availability of these sources is concerned, right? That, that books about folklore and books about, um, you know, mythology, uh, the, particularly like the ones that were used for these texts are up on like the internet archive or whatever, or they're available very cheaply. Um, I bought uh, Martha Warren Beckwith's Hawaiian mythology on Kindle for, you know, a couple of dollars. Like it's not, uh, it, I, I often think when I think about deities and demigods, when I'm tempted to cr- criticize deities and demigods, which I think in many ways ha- has terrible flaws, um, you know, that the Chinese mythology section is pure nonsense. Um, but then I try to think to put myself in the shoes of like poor old Jim Ward, right? Like Mm -hmm. given the brief to write a book covering all of world mythology, (laughs) a school teacher in small town, Iowa in 1979, what resources does he have available to him about Chinese mythology in a language? 150 pages or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) He's got to fill out a series of forms. They gave him a series of forms saying, do one of these for each deity. Like, off you go to the Cedar Rapids Public Library, Jim Ward, and try <laughs> exactly. to find out what you can about Hawaiian mythology, right? No Wikipedia, no, not, I mean, no nothing, right? right. There's no internet, correct, this, right? The so smallest nothing. child today has more yeah. resources available for this stuff than the yeah. guys writing. So I, I try to be, I try to bear that in mind. 
I mean, you even know. even colleges back then, you had to get like inner college loans between libraries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who knew when it. it would arrive? Yeah. Um, yeah. So my recommendation now for the most part, I, I'm now I, I want to stress that I'm not recommending these as like current looks at the folklore. So like mm. Martha Warren Beckwith's book is significantly out of date, but it kind of remains the fundamental text. And if you just go, particularly if you have a monster that's not, it, it can be tricky when you have a monster that has been in D&D for a long time. So like a lot of uh, stuff that you'll read about, uh, to pick something, again, a D&D's demigod saying Apshai, that's all from D&D's demigods, right? The Apshai mm-hmm. insect is a very minor figure in Egyptian mythology. Almost any reference you find to it comes from D&D and from people reading these demigods like it's a guide to mythology <laughs> but a lot of the time if you just go and put in like i don't know let's say you want to cover like uh to, to pick to pick a folkloric animal from the book we're talking about today fiend folio the al mirage um if you just type al mirage or just mirage right i'll just means the um into google you will find like even the wikipedia entry is full of links to medieval you know arabic manuscripts that feature this creature um uh or if you just if you just type medieval bestiary it, you know into google you'll find those original texts accessible to you um or on amazon for cheap or i mean or at your local independent bookseller for cheap mm-hmm. um you know <laughs> use your local independent bookseller kids um but uh but you know the um uh and you should also do like because if you look at the influences that created these things, they were not done by people digging down and doing specific research, right? They were done by people who just had a very curious attitude and who had certain things that they were fascinated by. So a lot of the sources that I have are things that I accumulated over a long period of just like, anytime I'm in a new town, I just go to the secondhand bookshops there, right? Because you never know what you might find. And I, you know, and that like, you just think, it's not even so much like, oh, I want to go look up something about uh Bacons, right? Like to pick another folkloric monster, um, who are not nearly as much fun in uh, what are they in Monster Manual too, um, as they are in in Scottish folklore, where they do a lot of hanging around, challenging farmers to fist fights. But um, but uh, like you have to kind of like so, someone once asked me um, about uh, collecting miniatures, which is another one of my hobbies. Uh, said like how do you find all this weird old rare stuff and i said well you can't like you can't go looking for it right you just have to let the water pass over the baleen you know (laughs) you just have to swim through the water with your mouth open like a whale and sieve out the nutritious krill and you find what you find right um i think if you kind of uh if you if you cultivate an attitude broadly of being interested in like the stories behind the stories like uh you know any any used bookshop has got a bunch of old like penguin translations of medieval romances or Icelandic sagas Mm -hmm. or whatever. Like those things are, are, are super available, but they're not like, they aren't kind of pushed on us because Mm -hmm. nobody makes money off you reading Njal saga (laughs) um, necessarily. I don't know. Maybe that's just me being a little hippie, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Like, I think if you just, just just pick like whatever monster you like and then just go you know just just think of um you know just look for whatever like collection of you know english country tales or whatever the thing turns up in but then just go from there you know um a, a recent thing that i worked on um was uh 
uh, inspired by the book uh, Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods, um, which is the inspiration for the D&D monster, the Squonk. Okay. Um, uh, and it's this is a, a collection of like 19th century lumberjack tall tales. Um, I, I, I don't think they're even authentic 19th century lumberjack tall tales. I think it's a work of fiction in that format. Mm, um, okay. But it's where the hodag comes from or... Uh, you know, uh, the, the one that I did, which was the Gumbaroo, like all kinds of weird, like Pacific Northwest creatures come from fearsome creatures of Lumberwoods. And I would never have known that if I hadn't thought to myself, like, in fact, I think I did the squonk the first time around on Monster Man. And I didn't know that that's where it came from. And someone told me, like, this is a, you know, I just thought, like, what is this nonsense? I think it's in Fiendfolio, right? The squonk. And I think it's one of those um... things where if you, I've got it right here. Hang on. I should look it up. But, um, you know, I think after you've been through a lot of the wacky stuff in there, it never occurs to you, oh, a weird little creature that cries all the time. This has to come from somewhere. <laughs> oh, no, it uh, must be in uh, must be Monster Mango, too. That's what yeah, the closest I'm seeing is, uh, oh, no, <laughs> that's funny. I saw a skunk and I was like, that can't. Oh, be yeah. No, no. We've already seen skunk. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, no. I tell you what, it was in Fiend Factory. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, that's 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 what it is. It was in the, it, was, it was one of the ones that didn't make the cut uh, into into Fiend Folio. It was in it was in White Dwarf magazine. Imagine Spock. being that poor monster didn't make Fiend <laughs> Oh boy, there are some. Uh, I mean, old old White Dwarfs, unfortunately, from that era, from the seventies, are very like expensive. They're quite collectible, mm. but uh, like you should be able to find, uh, you know, ways to read some of those issues and. Uh, most of them are just curious. Like you're like, ah, oh, this is how people were talking about D and D in the, you know, the late seventies in the UK. But the monster entries are, they're bizarre. <laughs> they're yeah, they're wild. Um, and I love them. But you know, perhaps certainly the winners tended to make the Fiendfolio. <laughs> I don't know if winners is the right word, but well, we'll get to that. we're, we're going to get to that real soon here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so James. Um, you also you've got some writing credits. You got some writing projects out there. Yeah, sure. um, tell us a little bit what what all do you have going on, and, and where can people access uh, these okay. things? So, uh, so the things that I've written most recently are um, uh, I contributed to the new edition of Cthulhu Dark Ages for Chaosium, um, which is a it comes from my being an early medievalist. That uh, uh, you know I contributed a few bits about um, kind of the culture of early medieval England. Um, I uh, I have these two, uh, so for Zine Quest or Zine Month, um, I have these two uh, little zines. One is uh, the Pamphlet of Pantheons, which is about um, making fantasy deities and religions. One is the Magonium Mind Murders, which is a, can you tell I like alliteration? Um, it's a, <laughs> a scenario for old school essentials focused around a kind of a, trying to do a murder mystery scenario, but without the sort of linear trail of clues aspect that so many published mystery scenarios have, which I, I kind it's of all like. order. Totally. Uh, yeah, and you know it's a uh, so maybe it's maybe it's more of a caper than a mystery. I don't know, but um, and uh, I also if you go to my um, itch page, which if I were really clever, I would have um, looked up the URL. Uh, I think it's just jholloway.itch.io. But um, I'll, I'll make a note here and I'll try to put it in the show notes. Yeah, um, that's not it anyway. So okay. um, <laughs> doesn't know his own. Yeah, follow the link <laughs> in the show notes. Um, and you'll find uh, that together with some other stuff that I did that's all uh, free or pay what you want, um, uh, including a little OSE bestiary that I did, um, all based on uh, stuff that I made out of, uh, like, sticking together plastic toys with hot glue. Um, 
and uh then um uh coming out soon um uh this year some point so in the next couple months uh i contributed to a folklore bestiary that's um being published by the mary mushman the guys who do knock okay. um i mean i mean knock as well like i've got something in in every issue um although i don't think that i particularly would be the first guy you go to like <laughs> just like oh who's in knock well you know there's like ZXU and people and oh and James Holloway like there's the guy you, care, <laughs> you know um and uh then I don't know if ZX in it but he might be um but uh but I I did some monsters um for this thing called the folklore bestiary we all wrote uh creatures that are based on like the folklore of our uh our homes okay um so I did a couple of early medieval English ones and I did uh, a couple of sort of um I did one that's like an urban legend from where I grew up in Northern California. And I did one that's uh, from uh, like 19th century Western America. Um, so those are going to be, they're all uh, based. So they're all done by, you know, so there's some Brazilian ones um, that were done by um, Diego Noguera. Um, and there's some uh, British and French ones from Steve Dempsey. There's a lot, a lot of French ones in particular, because of course it's a French uh, publisher. Uh, but the book is in English. There's a version of it coming out for OSE and a version for 5e. They had a Kickstarter earlier this year. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, I think, uh, again, whichever version of the game you play, whether even if it's not either of those two, I think, uh, you know, it could be an, a, a great source of inspiration. But so that's probably my biggest next thing coming out. Oh, oh, and I had a thing just come out like today. The, um, the, the hard copies of uh, Trophy are on their way to people who, who backed it. It's been out digitally for a while, but Trophy is a, a role-playing game from the Gauntlet. Um, Trophy Trophy Dark and Trophy Gold are the two okay, games. I, I've played then the Trophy a, Gold before. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a setting book called uh, Trophy Loom, um, and I wrote a chunk of that. Um, so that's uh, that's that's on its way to, uh, to uh, pre-orderers in hard copy, and I assume will be available uh, after that. So yeah, a couple of little bits and pieces. There's probably some things I'm forgetting. Oh, um, I work with, I've done some work with uh, the History and Games Lab at the University of Edinburgh. Um, they're uh, interested in kind of combining historical research and uh, gaming. Um, and so I contributed to a book there called uh, Viking in the Sun, which is a supplement for the miniatures game Lion Rampant uh, about uh, the career of Harald Sigurdsson or Harald Harda, who is a, a future king of Norway, um, but who was part of the Byzantine army in the Mediterranean in the 1040s. Um, and had all kinds of adventures, went to Sicily and went to Palestine and, and all sorts of places. Wow. Um, so yeah, but they, uh, History and Games Lab, if you like history and you like games, uh, you know, I, I recommend checking out the yeah. History and Games Lab, and I'm not just saying that because of my friends. Um, uh, but so yeah, boy, that went on long, but there's a lot of stuff. It's a, it's <laughs> a lot you, of little man. things. Yeah. Can, can, you, can you tell uh, that the lot of little things model is, uh, right. <laughs> is, is relevant? Yeah. I wanted to uh, going. This is going back, but you just reminded me, uh, not on purpose. Uh, <laughs> back to your research and uh, and planning stages. Mm -hmm. I'm often curious how many times you repeat the names of things before you start recording. Oh, <laughs> <'Cause yeah. laughs> going so many so cultures, so many monster names, <laughs> and you often apologize for them. But it's obvious to me that you've. Either you have some natural skill at that or both, or I you've do, done some. I uh, definitely, I do some research. So for, so for ones where I'm not so sure about the pronunciation. So for instance, um, a, uh, 
uh, a friend, uh, Tom McGrenery, who you may know as the co-host of uh, Fear of a Black Dragon. Yep. Um, yep. And he helped me with a lot of the Chinese pronunciation, for instance. So I have like a video of Tom pronouncing all the names <laughs> in right. the section. And I would just go back and like, I would even pause, go over to Tom's video, play him saying that name, go back. Um, I I searched a bunch. Of, I, I, I watched a bunch of like videos about Irish mythology, making sure only to watch ones that were clearly made by Irish speakers. Um, so that was very important. Um, mythology is a weird term for it. I'm not sure I agree with that, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so for some monsters, I get it wrong. Um, and I, sometimes I get it right. And I've been yelled at. So like, for instance, one of the, so the, the, the pronunciation, so there's an article in Dragon Magazine in the eighties called a pronunciation guide, um, yep. which was right. And which has stuff in it that just doesn't make any sense. Right. So like it, there, there's things like bullet is pronounced boulet. And that's obviously some kind of a running gag. Like it's fancier, it's French, you know? <laughs> so therefore it's, I'm just like, look, that's not how it's spelled guys. That's not, I get what, I get where you're going. It's funny. But as someone left a, a, a negative review on my show, being like, he doesn't even know it's pronounced boulet. And I was like, no, I, made, I made that decision. I, I know. Tim Cask would go to his grave saying that that, that boulet is what they meant to do. I, I call bullshit every time he says it. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I there's I no it. it's, way. It's, it's fancier, you know. Yeah. Um, but so there's, um, and, and uh, or like, um, I'm trying to think of some other examples. There's somewhere I just don't know, right? Like, I just kind of say, um what comes out right uh like or but yeah there are some where i um it's definitely well, a thing that i that i think about a lot right I mean, I mean, I guess, yeah with, your, your effort definitely comes across because yeah. I, I feel like it's been nice having that ride through all the different sounds <laughs> that exist in the, <laughs> in the world well, of mythology I mean, like, and creatures we're, we're going to talk today i'm sure about some ones where i definitely had to just kind of be like uh <laughs> you know this is pronounced uh a Kairi, you know. Yeah, well, it's it's part of the fun, right? Of, of of gamers pronouncing monsters and creatures their own way in their own group. Uh, yes, one year they go to a convention and they run across somebody who pronounces it completely different, and you argue you argue with each other over a beer about you know that's, how to pronounce. That's right. The door flies open, and you yes, see in there. Yeah. And we kiffle. have fun. We all have fun with it, even though right. That was a kiffle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. If I can just if I could just get gamers. To stop saying coup de gras, I'll be a happy man. <laughs> um uh because it, it's weird and I don't like it. Um I mean it's got such a great image associated in my mind with it. You, well, well that's right. So because because exactly. you, uh, you speak French, don't you, Edwin? So you're like, yeah, he's yeah. hitting him with grease. I'm gonna use that in game someday. <laughs> right. Um oh yeah, yeah, that could be true. He hits you with a coup de gras. Don't you mean coup de gras? I do not. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Roll a dex check. Um, yeah. All right, uh, awesome. All right, Lou. Uh, we need to move on, but I did just see my notes. I gotta ask you one more question because okay. it, you know, everyone I, I'm sure is wondering. Y- you've read all these monsters, researched them. What's your favorite? Oh, uh, don't make me choose. I mean, uh favorite monster. Gee whiz. Um, okay, so it, like to let my heart speak, it's bugbears. Like, and there's no reason for it. I just <laughs> like them. You know, they just I love the 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 illustration in the monster manual where the bugbear is just kind of like loosely belting the guy with the mace. I think that's funny. He just <laughs> like you could you can see he's saying, like, ah, shut up, you. Um, 
the uh i don't know i partly i'm influenced by the old d20 modern book where there was that there was an illustration of a bugbear cop so he's just in like a police uniform and he's just tapping his baton against the palm of his hand you're like ah here comes officer bugbear (laughs) like i don't know why that's funny to me but i think it's hilarious i just i love my rowdy boys but they're not who i would necessarily like they're not uh they're not like particularly, you know, they, they don't make great villains. They're just another, you know, like fight humanoid. They could be anybody. They they are, but there's a certain imagery about bugbears that just are attractive to a lot of people. You know, yeah. I think the biggest disservice to bugbears ever was Temple of Elemental Evil. Where they just absolutely rammed them down our throat in the most boring way possible. Um, yeah, just bugbears. They're just, I, I agree. I mean, they're just an iconic, great creature. They just, uh, you can do so much with them. That's they're my not, rowdy boys. Yes, you know, exactly I'm, right. And I think they're, it is. Uh, I think it is really interesting. They got that, that sneaky element to them, right? Where they they, they yeah. surprise people really well, and there's just there's just a whole you know dichotomy of forces going on with the bugbear. They're they're big, powerful, and nasty, but then they're sneaky. Uh, you know, they want to surprise you and jump you. That yeah. kind of thing. Well, they're they're and 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 like cast against the more like barbaric orc or the more like militaristic hobgoblin. Sure. The bugbear is just kind of like the, the word that always comes to mind when I think about them is ruffians, right? Like they're Absolutely. ruffians. Yeah. 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 And like I just, rowdy I know, is, that's, that's funny. I think rowdy is a great word that you, yeah. you pick they're, up for them. But that's kind of what they are, right? They're just, just up to uh, some mean spirited hijacks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, love, yeah. I, I, that's but, a great pick. But so they're fun. And like, I don't know. I like, but if you ask me tomorrow, I'd probably come up with a different answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, we all do. There, there are, game, there are yeah. so many to choose from. Um, And which book? I mean, boringly it has to be the 77 monster manual because it's it's foundational right it's the it's it's the book that that everything else is derived from it's the most important isn't my favorite you know i admit to having a little bit of a soft spot for creature catalog actually like creature catalog you you, you mean the bx one or the beckney one well they're they're pretty much the same you know pretty much um uh, although I, i will say i have to say i think the art um, insofar as there are differences, I think the, the BX one, I, I don't know. I like it. Um, it's, uh, um, I, I, so it's a weird grab bag. It's, it's all stuff that was from scenarios, but not included in, in book, uh, yeah. any of the, the, the rule, the, the rule sense, books. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. therefore it's necessarily full of oddities, right? They're all edge cases or else they would be yeah. in a rule book. And it, I never really believed that D&D and AD&D were meaningfully different games. But actually, if you put this up, like, there's a weird pulpy sensibility to Creature Catalog that I actually think is absent. That These, like, floating islands full of mysterious fey warriors and they're, like, animated silver armor guys. Like, that's kind of... There's a lot of time travel. There's a lot of, like, weird... Like, it's not science fantasy but it sort of has that aesthetic to it it's kind of got a there's a sort of 80s neon layer on it that i kind of i don't know like i don't know if it's my favorite but it it definitely has a uh i I don't know i i I couldn't put them in order but except that monster manual 2 is obviously it's uh, at the bottom uh despite it is very fascinating the creature catalog because that bx was you know produced concurrently with ad and d and how how many BX creatures, which they have a phenomenal wealth of creatures in actually BX that mm-hmm. never transitioned to, mm-hmm. you would think they would have moved them into their flagship AD&D, but it never happened, right? Yeah, and, happened. and and wow. some that I think actually could really, you know, I like I, I just like, it's like five bucks on drive through or something. It's like, it's definitely worth 
great checking book. out it's because it's got it's got a lot of in, like real interest and and you know they're not all winners but no. uh but it's I, I don't know to me it's quite interesting and i think also like it's the cheapest uh ose monster book you're ever gonna buy like <laughs> right. um so yeah no i think it's i think it's got a lot going for it i, I like to pick out a master manual too because i mean it that's i think from for people that are i mean the master manual is just it's your go-to it's where you're going to look first right and then if you're if you're not finding what you really want in the master manual then you're going to go somewhere else but i think most people will gravitate to opening that master manual. yeah I, I've had a monster movie for almost 40 years. I still go through it and, and see something in there that I never saw before in a different way and say, you know what, this is really cool. I can do something with this. So um, it's, it's, a, I think it's the, it's the book for most people that they're going to grab first. And while we're on that subject, let's talk about the book. They're probably going to grab last. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, well, certainly not uh, for me. I, I, I mean, well, <laughs> we'll talk about it in a moment. <laughs> right, um, so I gotta we, get we my shots in. <laughs> we don't have, uh, and guys, you know, it's it's taken me a while to get over over myself here. For the first time since uh, the very first episode, we don't have any any <laughs> listener mail. Uh, John Williams uh, did email us. He's uh, been a long time listener, and um, hopefully, if I get my editing right, uh, just before the program, you you heard an audio bit that he did for us. Uh, it just, I, I found it just hilarious. Uh, but he's been working on some stuff like that. And uh, so I want to thank him for that. And you can uh, see more of the um, material that he's producing. Uh, he's got a podcast uh, called Heavy Metal. And uh, he's, got a, uh, he, he's got a project he's working on, getting ready to kickstart. Um, and uh, he, we'll, I'll also put in the show notes some links to some of that. But thank you, John. And uh, man, it's, you know, uh, for a guy just out there uh, doing what he wants to do, uh, that, that's just a, a cool little bit that you did for us. I appreciate it. So I wanted Absolutely. to throw yeah, that thank out. You. Don't have any other mailbag uh, write-ins or anything, so uh, so we'll, we'll just move on to the main event. Hey, buddy. Want to go for a ride in my flying car? Nah. How about we go fly around with our jetpacks? Nah. The future's just so boring. Is the future boring you too? Well, maybe you should listen into the Save for Half podcast. The podcast about old school gaming, where we take a look at old gaming books with fresh eyes. You can find us at saveforhalf.com or on iTunes or around the corner. Perhaps we're standing behind you right now. Don't look. This old dungeon. Supposed to blow the bloody doors off. All right, so uh, we've come here tonight uh, not just to talk about James' show, but to to have a, a a civil discussion, Bill, a civil discussion about the Fiend Folio. Um, so, uh, James, I know you already did it on your show, but if you don't mind, I feel like you're far more knowledgeable than, than the rest of us on the, the context to which this book arrives. Do you mind kind of starting us off telling us about The Fiend Folio? Uh, okay. So The Fiend Folio is the second monster book that came out for ad d It was published in 1981. Um, and it has a complex publication history, which it's not necessary to go into all of here. And also I, I couldn't, there's parts of it that I couldn't tell you. I understand. It originates from... Uh, it's also the first, I think the first thing published by TSR UK, uh, yeah. which was located right here in Cambridge. Um, 
and it did not begin as a TSR project at all, really. Um, it began its life uh, in the pages of White Dwarf magazine. Now, if you're a modern human and you're familiar with White Dwarf mainly as uh, a vehicle for you know Games Workshop and its uh, line of miniatures games, um, you may be surprised to hear that there's a lot of D&D in White Dwarf. But in fact, um, up until the mid 80s, uh, White the late 80s, really, White Dwarf was primarily an RPG magazine. Um, and Games Workshop were the mm -hmm. British publishers of D&D. &D. Um, and uh, not just resellers, but they actually did publish their own edition. Um, uh, with a cover by Chris Baker? Don't quote yeah. me. It might be John Blanche. Yeah, um, I think he goes by... Uh, he, uh, he has a pen name. Yeah, Fangorn. Yeah, yeah. Fang, Fangorn, as he's known. But yeah, Chris And it's, it's a cool cover. If you've never seen it, folks, check it out. I, you know, I don't have it, but I wouldn't mind having that version. I think it's, it's so, a, it's so a, beautiful. It's, a, it's a fascinating piece of the, of the game's history. So... Yeah. As part of that, so as part of their kind of like drive to make D&D a big thing in the UK, um, they would, there was a, a column in White Dwarf, the Fiend Factory, um, which was coupled with a line of miniatures from quite early on. And I, I, I don't know, but I suspect that some of the monsters in the Fiend Folio exist because corresponding monsters existed in the Fiend Factory miniatures line. Um, I particularly think that's the case with the Fire Nudes. Um, but uh, we, again, so... But this took a, the, the 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 book was supposed to be published. I think they announced it for like seventy nine or eighty, yeah. and it wasn't published till much later. And that is partly because there was this complicated thing where at one point I believe it was discussed that TSR was going to acquire GW, um, yeah. um, or that they were going to merge or something like that. There, there uh, was that a not, thing that did yeah. not happen. Correct. Um, and, and of course, uh, TSR then decided to to found its own. Uh, branch TSR UK, which was headed up by Don Turnbull, who had been the guy who edited the Fiend Factory column in White Dwarf. Um, and so as a consequence, the Fiend Folio is kind of a grab bag, right? Like, I, I, I would not like to argue that the Monster Manual has a single creative vision, because it very much does not. But even more so than any other uh, AD&D monster book, it's incredibly scattered, right? And it has some quite famous contributors. Um, so the most prolific contributor is Ian Livingston. Um, he was one of the foundation, one of the co-founders of Games Workshop. Um, he was uh, still running GW at that time, and uh, he was the creator of uh, Fighting Fantasy, the solo game book line, uh, and of course um, then went on to do uh, computer games. So he did the Tomb Raider and things like that. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know he personally, but that his company. Uh, and also we've got, um, Charles Strauss, right. Best known as a novelist, right. The, the author of the laundry files, but he created a bunch of monsters for the fiend folio. And indeed, I think we could argue that he has the best hit rate of any contributor. Almost every monster he creates is still in the game today in a big way. Um, and when we've also got people like, um, Albie Fiore, who was an important or Fiore, I'm not sure was an important guy in, in early games workshop, uh, Phil Masters, um, who uh, obviously went on to do a lot of other stuff and some uncredited uh, things like, for example, we some things that are credited to Underworld Oracle, which was the name of a zine. Um, so whether that's a, like a pen name for the editor or they just took it out of the zine, I don't know. Hmm. Um, it's probably like it's uh, it's illustrated. Um, I, I, it also represents like a like a big departure. It looks, Steadily, I mean, yeah, yeah it, it looks very different from and notably better than uh, it's. Uh, AD and D contemporaries, with the possible exception of Dee's demigods, um, because it is uh, it's got uh, great interior illustrations 
uh, many of them by Russ Nicholson. Um, but also uh, here, I'm going to stick up for uh, Alan Hunter, um, who I think often gets overlooked because he has to be next to Russ Nicholson all the time, <laughs> which is a rough job. Um, but uh, uh, but it's it was a very divisive book. I mean, it was controversial even when it came out. Like it got uh, it, it, the weirdest thing for a pretty flagship TSR AD&D product. It got kind of a middling review in Dragon Magazine, which you wouldn't think would be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people were, that was Ed Greenwood, I believe, who wrote that review. Yeah. And I don't think he enjoyed it very much. Um, and if we can assume that he was more complimentary about it than you know he might've been if he wasn't writing in TSR's house magazine about a TSR product, um, uh, I think he may not have liked it very much at all. <laughs> and it has been criticized. I think there are a couple of things that people level against it. One, that a lot of the monsters in it are silly. Second, and I think this is very true, that a lot of the monsters in it are gamey. So there are creatures in it that don't necessarily make sense in a fantasy world. They only make sense in a game. Um, Now, I will argue that that is actually true of the Monster Manual as well, but we can talk about that later on. Um, But so one of the reasons that we chose to discuss the Fiend Folio is that it has been so divisive. Some people love it. Some people hate it. And I don't think that there are very many people who kind of sort of think it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll stand up for that camp. Okay. I, I'm kind of there too. I'm, I think of it like the cilantro <laughs> of D&D books. You, you don't want to put it in everything, but every now and again, you know, in the right thing, you know, boom, that monster just makes mm. it work, you know? Just did a, so just I, I, I have some, I have some <laughs> theories about it, but. I mean, I, I don't know how you guys want to proceed in terms of discussing. Yeah, I hadn't really planned this out. Uh, what I did is I just made a list of like monsters. I'm like, this is why this book rocks and monsters. This is why this book sucks. Uh, so I, that's what I, how about y'all? How do you want to go about this? Well, I think we could, we could still stick with a, a little bit with the overall impression of the book. I mean, I mean, for those of us who are around when it came out, um, I think that's where you, you, you really hit the nail on the head with this. There, there really were two camps, I think, back in the day. There were, you know, first of all, almost everyone bought it because it was a new hardcover from TSR. It was, yeah. it, you know, it was a new monster book. People were starving for monsters. It's a huge thing, right? So, um, well, contextually, that's pretty important too. That you, you, people got to understand it. It had been uh, almost five years since yes. the last monster book. I mean, we're used to monsters coming out every year, almost. Yeah, now, this is five years and, of dry spell. Yeah, of dry spell, and they hadn't, they hadn't like placed any monster right it was the only monster book so you you've had a you've got a whole dearth of adventure modules with new mo- new monsters in it that didn't appear anywhere except in that actual module so once you had that you had no access to it so you know here comes this new book called the fiend foley which had this cool name i mean i i, I first admit it's got a great name mm-hmm. and you know but then it, it it shows up right and i i think i bought it i want to say i got it at gen con I, I think that's where i picked it up a big release of tsr and um and you're looking at this thing and again, I know it's all anecdotal. This is my viewpoint, but it's also from people, everyone I knew at the time. Almost everyone was revolted, honestly, by this book. They they did not like the art. It wasn't something uh, I think people were expecting, which is mm. I, right different than whether it's good or not. It's it was the expectation of what you open this book up and you're like, what the hell is this? This doesn't look like anything TSR has ever produced. So you yeah. get some shock value from that, right? Whether I think there are some great illustrations in that book. I think there's some absolutely horrific illustrations in that book. I don't, I don't care for it myself but overall. 
um, it, it, um, but you would just, agree again, that the same could be said about Monster Manual One, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. There's well, right. obviously, but you know, I'm a Sutherland fan, so it's kind of you know, I, I, I it, with with absolutely no disrespect to Sutherland or Sutherland fans, I, I think you would be hard put to argue that Sutherland's a better artist than Russ Nicholson. He's he's not. I don't no. I don't I don't think he is. But but I, I am getting context about it being a, a, it's a very for, different. Wait, it's changes a book, styles. Yeah. A change of styles. A book from 1977 had you know that I think what we see from 1977 and what the access to artists that TSR had at the time. I oh, think that sure. was the best book they were going to produce, right? Yeah. But no, then no, no, here we are. Here we are, seven or eight years later. Yeah. And, and I do I do think that even if you take a look at like Deities and Demigods, which has got that beautiful Arrow Lotus cover, and then the interior art's very like comic booky. Well, it, Jeff D did a lot of the work. Sure, so that, right. Jeff, D's, Jeff D's a comic book artist, yep, right? Yep, and, yep. and look at the the American illustrations in Fiend Folio. Again, they're very comic booky because who did them? A comic book artist, Bill Willingham. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but, but take that and then compare it to this weird, very heavy, like almost like a, like sort of pointillist yeah. newspaper print illustration style over, of Russ yeah. Nicholson. I do understand how that's jarring. It does right. look and, very and, different. And, that, and that's what, right. Without like artist objective, right? So, so yeah. I, I, oh, I mean, sure. like someone else will love it. But I think what, what I think my, my major point of was, it was shockingly different than anything that most mm. of us over here had seen. I, I had I had seen White Dwarf. I have I had a lot of White Dwarf uh, uh, magazines at the time. So I, I have seen a lot of UK-based mm. product, which looks, again, significantly different than United States product from the time frame. Yeah. So I don't think I was as shocked as maybe a lot of people, but it was still jarringly different to see it actually in a hardcover book. I mean, I just yeah. figured it, felt, it would look like contemporary TSR products and it didn't, it looked wildly different. And then, like you said, you start flipping through it and you run into some of these monsters and you're like, you gotta be effing kidding me. Who thought that this was a good idea, right? And then, then you do come across, you know, the, the diamond and rough. <laughs> but to me, there's a lot less diamonds in the rough than there are rough. Um, but so I think that's where um, the, the overall reception of that book was. It wasn't great. It wasn't mass produced second, third printings like a lot of other TSR. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely it sold notably less well than yes, other it, books in the and, same period. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. true. So that doesn't make it a bad book. You know, I joke a lot about that. I, I think it's one of the worst TSR books ever produced, but that's just me for my mostly aesthetic one. I do. Mm. I will flip through it. I will pull things out of it because there's like everything else. There is something good in every book that comes out. Mm -hmm. But I just think um, the overall impression of that book, it really. They went so far, I think, against the traditional grain that. Um, that that shock value really impacted the legacy of that book. And honestly. I think it's noticeable that monster manual two is very much a more of the same book tying back to monster manual one right like it's, it's, it's a monster manual monster manual two is a last crusade type of situation you it, know it is um, no, that that's another book i mean i don't, I don't want to get into monster manual two monster manual has got some absolutely fantastic stuff and it. it's got some absolutely garbage sections in it that it's you just it's like it's, it, you look at it, it's like this is just filler you just yes. you had to go why would they put this in here well because they they put a lot of good so they put the good stuff they should have put in Monster Manual Two wound up in Gene Folio. So uh, <laughs> that's that's an interesting point too because because Fiend Folio is a, is is a is a book of many different parts, right? I think that grab bag nature of it, it mm -hmm. the, the fact that it's made up from all these different contributors, and then 
it's also got so it's got stuff from all these British contributors, and then it's got a bunch of monsters that are from in adventure modules yeah. that, that are in house. So, um, and uh, so things like the Aracocra, uh, the Tabaxi, the Bullywug, um, yeah. uh, the Kuotoa, um, yeah. uh, and so uh, those like so I, I, so I ran some, I did some numbers. Because I think this is interesting. So there are 159 entries in the Fiend Fiendfield. There's not 159 monsters because some of those entries are like devil and then there'll be a bunch of devils, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, but the 159 monsters, of those, uh, 20 are from some kind of folklore, right? So things like the Almirage, the Buka, the Bunyip, um, uh, I don't know, the Kenku, right? Stuff like that. And the Kenku is folklore inspired. Uh, well, mind you, uh, the Kelpie, is based on a piece of Scottish folklore, but it's not very like that. Anything like it, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, about a half dozen come from previous D&D products. Um, then there's uh, about a, there's a, a few that are kind of like adapted from literature of some sort. So the Zvart. Um, like uh, Appendix N kind of stuff we're talking here then. What's that? Uh, these are yeah. Appendix N kind of monsters. Yeah, here. these are these are, these are are creatures that are, that are clearly from something else, but kind of like with the serial numbers filed off. And um, I don't know what I thought the other ones were, but I'm sure I could uh, uh, I could think of it. And then um, there's uh, one that to me is pretty much a straight. Uh, that's a monster from a movie, right? Which is the Gorbel, um, which is meant to be the uh, the beach ball from Dark Star. Um, uh, but uh, but so then we've got about a dozen monsters that are just a spin on a previous creature. So for example, the Flind. Which is like, what if a knoll was tougher? Right. <laughs> um, uh, or, you know, well, there are like, uh, you know, there are like hill giants or ice trolls or whatever, right? That are just mm. some other kind of, you know, New or variation yeah, of cloud dragons, uh, things like that. Uh, there are about another dozen that are basically just some kind of animal. Um, Ian Livingston in particular, like you can match because because unlike most TSR books, this one credits the specific contributors who created each monster, right? Whereas, for example, like you could read Monster Manual 2 till you die of old age and not realize who created, say, the Modron. Where a lot of that stuff came from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Francois Marcella Foideval. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, oh, I'm outclassed now. Well, I didn't want to mention it and then not say, you know, that would be, um, but so, um, I think that's right anyway. Um, but so, uh, but so you can see patterns, right? So, for example, Ian Livingston really loves, uh, I think, I think the man likes an animal fact, right? There are lots of monsters in there that are basically some kind of natural thing. kingdom gimmick, the assassin mm -hmm. bug, uh, the tiger fly. Um, he really seems to like monsters that lay their eggs in you. Um, <laughs> come up a lot. But then, like, other people tend to produce more of the goof monsters. And then, of course, some of the hits um, uh, are Charles Strauss monsters. Um, right. But so, looking at this, I would say that when people think of the Fiend Folio, they think of the weird ones. But actually, I think those weird monsters only make up about 10% of the book. Yeah, 10% is a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong, but so I like I, I'm willing to accept that there are 15 or 16 genuinely pretty stupid monsters in here, even though there's a couple of them that I think have merit, um, which would be the Akairi, the Adherer, the Seafall, maybe the Carbuncle, the Dacon, which is a, a big ape that carries luggage, mm -hmm. um, the Disenchanter, the Flail Snail, the Flump, the Garbug, which is basically a flying lobster, 
the Gumbado, the Mantari, the Nilbog, the Tirafeg, the Umpleby. Uh, oh, and and I, I actually went and put the Aliax um, uh, on the on the list as well at the end, even though it should alphabetically come first, which is a monster that exists solely to bully player characters uh, on behalf of a GM and is just ill-conceived from start to finish. <laughs> Although it has a funny... The, well, anyway. So I, I don't think there's any like... Like there's actually... There's an article that I wanted to bring up um, written by a guy called Roger S.G. Sirola, um, which was published in uh, Analog Game Studies. And he contends that the Fiend Folio and Monster Manual are less different than we tend to think. So Sometimes wrong. <laughs> so his argument is, is thus. What's his First, so one of the things he said is one of the things that you said, Bill, which is that the book looks so different. He says, a lot of people will tell you that the Fiend Folio is darker and weirder than the other... Uh, than the other TSR books, which is how British gamers tend to think of themselves relative to their American counterparts, right? That they're that they have like more of a weird sense of humor, that they tend to like games that are a little less optimistic, superheroes never really big in the UK, you know. But uh Cirilla says mm, that's really just the art. You know, Russ Nicholson's art looks weird and grotesque, but they don't think that most of the monsters are like that. The, diff the thing that makes Monster Manual different from Fiend Folio is the number of, ob like, take away all the monsters that are not from D&D. &D. And what have you got? The Gas Spore, right? The Gas Spore could be in the Fiend Folio for sure. Yep. The Beholder, the Mind Flayer, uh, like, those are weird monsters, right? Um, sure, like, obviously there aren't skeletons and zombies and wolves and dinosaurs um, and uh, orcs and goblins uh, in the fiend folio and there aren't sphinxes and pegasuses and chimeras because uh, those have been done they're, you know, yeah, they're the low are... hanging fruit they've already been picked Yeah, well, not mm -hmm. the low hanging fruit but all the, the foundational well, monsters the ones that you yeah. have to get out of the way but when you look at the things that are unique to D&D they're all weird fish you can step on <laughs> or like strange alien creatures the gas spore is something that its ecology is dependent on living in a world where enough people know what a beholder looks like and their automatic reaction would be to hit it with a sword, which seems like a very ill-advised way to approach a beholder. Um, that That's how it reproduces or something, right? There's a lot of weird reproductive cycle monsters in Monster Manual, just like there are in Fiend Folio. But there's this also, there's this big trench of uh, the staples. And when we think about monsters in the monster manual, we think about dragons and orcas, you know, like those are classics. Obviously, all the classics are in the first book. Um, so the folklore monsters make up a much smaller percentage of the Fiend Folio and also of Monster Manual 2, right? Like Monster Manual 2 has got like the Avank, the Bacon, the Boobry. Like there are some uh, folkloric monsters in it, but there's a much higher proportion in Monster Manual. And that kind of makes Monster Manual stand out. Um, a little bit, I think. Um, but on the, but like, but this is not. Oh, the the other literary ones are the the Grimlock and the Quagoth. Um, I didn't realize until I'd done that episode that the Quagoth is meant to be the creature from uh, is it Journey to the Center of the Earth? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, There's so, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thoughts. So now, so those are the ones that I think that like everybody 
like people like flumps but only ironically you know every, everybody loves flumps now but only like in the same way that everybody loves holly fans now right um just because they're funny it's funny that this thing exists it doesn't exist but you know what i mean mm-hmm. um whereas i don't think anybody has looked at the like the weird thing about the tear so you can you can look if you look at the white dwarfs you'll see the transition some of these monsters change quite a lot and in many cases this is just don turnbull changing what they say but there's also weird stuff like the tirafeg is originally called like it's called like jackie or something like i forget what it's called, it's called <laughs> lauren or something like that it just has a woman's name so I think somebody just designed a grotesque monster and named it after their ex-girlfriend or something <laughs> like that. Like, I genuinely think that's what it was. Um, some of those, like, I'll I'll give a, like, I'll say are pretty good monsters, but they're weird. So, like, the Seafull is not a bad monster, but it's presented in a way that's wildly out of keeping with what the rest of D&D is like at this point in time. It's this weird science fiction. It has a name that's an acronym. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a fine monster, but it's very odd. Um, but most of these are dumb. The adherer is stupid, right? It's a mummy, but it's actually made of masking tape with the. I, I'm gonna argue against that. Out. So, uh, so I think you know. I, I guess this is part of what we do in this program is try to take stuff and pull it out of the fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always loved it here, but I've never used the the, the ecology that they had written. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like the Egyptians, uh, there's a point. I think it's the like the New Kingdom, early in the New Kingdom. They had the whole the, the the black mummies, the mummies that were coated in a in a tar resin, and that's what yeah. I've always kind of transferred them to. Is okay, you got this mummy, but part of their process was being covered in a in a pitch, and so now you know as you attack them, your stuff sticking to them. Um, oh, that's, uh, that that is better than the way it's presented. Oh, that, conceptually, it's a fun fight, right? To to have your your plus three sword. Oh yeah, you get a hit on it, sure, but now your sword's stuck to it. Now what? The, you know, because the problem with the adhere is presented is that it's all gimmick. Right. Like it's and specifically it's a gimmick that only exists in a game context. So there are a lot of monsters in the Fiend Folio, which are gotcha monsters. This is also true in Creature Catalog, which are gotcha monsters attempting to waste clerics turn. (laughs) Right. So there's a lot of things that look like they're undead, but they aren't. The Necrophidius would be another example. mm -hmm. Um, That's that's the yeah, that's the third part of the wheel for me with with Fiend Folio is appearance. Right. It's just. It was very alien for us to look at that back in the mm-hmm. day versus like if something like that came out today, it'd be just, it'd be cool because it'd be something completely different. We're more yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, you know, and then it was the goofy nature of, of a lot of these creatures in there, but then you, you also go, you get away from the goofy creatures and you get a lot of wait, wait, exactly what you're saying. You get mechanic driven creatures. Right. And, and, and so it's like, they put this mechanic into this creature just to F the, player yeah. characters over but then it was almost like i, I kind of look back at like one e gamma world where it's like they they had a chart and they rolled a percentile die and they added another stupid ability to this creature just to give it some sort of other depth and it, you know it just it continues with it just continues that whole bizarre nature of there's a, a there's of a definitely a lot of it's a this existing type of monster plus plus some other yeah. Thing, yeah yeah so, so again just a, and, a book that has a whole it's not just one thing in the portfolio, right? It's a combination oh, of, yeah. of a bunch of different things, three or four major things that made that book so different. Again, related to expectation, which is a dangerous thing, right? But it's just that's the reality of what the portfolio did when it came out. The expectation what, of that book was so rad, radically different. 
And that's the one of the reasons that I think that, and this is not my case arguing that the Fiend Folio is good. This is that it's interesting. Because to me, what's interesting about the Fiend Folio is that the Fiend Folio is the first, uh, this is the first book produced by players. Right? Mm-hmm. Is is yeah. created by people writing into a magazine. So, I mean, with the exception of, well, I mean, actually having said that, the, yeah. By far the largest contributors are the, the owners of the magazine. Or, yeah. okay. Are Ian yeah. Livingston, yeah. But never mind that. But what it has is lots of monsters that are obviously designed to react to things players do. Sure. Um, which is and, and which tells like and 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 that goes doubly for the Fiend Factory, which has all kinds of weird situational, essentially trap monsters. Now, I don't find those very interesting. Uh like I can't stand the adherer, or as it was originally known, the gluey. um which is if anything worse um but uh or or the disenchanter right which is clearly a monster that exists uh because some dm thinks that they've let the players get too many powerful magic items and so along is going to come a rust monster but for magic items um or uh or like i said the aliacs whose job is to catch people who like aren't uh living up to their alignment and beat the ever-loving tar out of them (laughs) um just like just tell your friends not to do stuff teenage boy what the heck like <laughs> um as an aside uh, i was reading an interview uh with rick Priestley, the designer of uh, warhammer um and he said that they did a bunch of uh market research between warhammer 40,000 first and second editions so they designed the first edition to be run by a game master and not to have like a whole lot of rules they, they messed up on that one but never mind and they discovered that their audience were mainly teenage boys. I'm surprised. Um, and he said, well, where, where we messed up is teenage boys are extremely good at memorizing large amounts of information. And they're absolutely terrible at using empathy and common sense to come to an agreement. <laughs> um, so that's the aliacs. Like, if you think that this character is misbehaving, just be like, Steve, don't do that. Don't be like, hmm, a glowing doppelganger of you appears and like calls you a punk and beats you up. But mm, it's not me. It's just the Aliacs. <laughs> um, there are some good scenario specific monsters in this. So the Susurus, I think, is an example of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's very much from one one adventure, the Lich way. Um, but I think it's uh, I think it's very memorable and works very well in that context. Um, and I will say that if you look at the monsters that have had like a legacy in the game. Uh, about half of them are probably among those like ones that come from a scenario and were added later, right? So I think we can say that the winners of the book are like the Arakokra, the Bullywug, uh, the Dark Creeper and Dark Stalker, which were later rebranded as the Darkling, yeah. uh, the Death Knight, some of the demons and devils, you know, so like, okay, Moloch's in there now, you know, um, uh, the Elemental Princes of Evil, the Ettercap, uh, the Githyanki and Githzerai, uh, the Gibberlings, the Grell, the Iron Cobra, the Kenku, the Kuotoa, the Mephit, uh, the Scarecrow, the Swerf Neblin, the Slod, the Tabaxi. And did I say the Yellow Musk Creeper? Yeah, I guess. Why not? <laughs> I um, think so. There's also a bunch of dangerous plants in this book. Um, and they're, you know, they're whatever. They're dangerous plants. They're all pretty much the same. They're slightly mechanically different from each other. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a ton of those in Monster Manual 2 as well, presumably because they're all just brought over from Expedition of the Barrier Peaks. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, context. Um, 
So, you know, like, so like Lewis saying the mandate of our show is going to be talk about this book and, and I've, I've, I've already said enough about mm-hmm. what I didn't like about, about theme folio. So I think what I, what I do like about theme folio is more of as, more of as a, uh, I'm going to pull monsters out of the theme folio to use. Mm-hmm. I use it more as a, uh, again, we can go back to that inspirational thing that we talked about earlier, right? I can, I can take a monster out of there and say, okay, I, I, I see this monster. It's goofy. Um, and, and sometimes it's, it's fun just to throw that in, in your game to use it to, to, to change or lighten up a part of your adventure that night or whatever. But I think a, a really great way to use a theme folio is, is to use this as an inspirational book is to take, take some of the monsters in there. It might be goofy and say, okay, what can I do to kind of fix this thing? You know, and, and by fix this thing, I, I'm being extremely judgmental about that, but, um, but fix it for you so it works for you in your game. Your party, you know? right. And I think there are, what I do think uh, is a great resource and why the theme folio can be great resource because there is a lot in there that is all over the place, right? It's just, it really is, like you said, there is no theme to any of the master manuals, but this one is in particular like a shotgun blast of crazy. Yeah. So you, but you can take elements of, of those, some of those creatures. I mean, there are some great iconic creatures in there. There's, there's no getting around that, but there are some that are just absolutely bizarre. Like Lewis talking about what he did with the eight here. You could do something with that and just make it really cool. Uh, where on initial glance, it's just not, it's just, it's just kind of, it's crazy. I, and, and I know what keeps going through my mind here is uh, the, the contrast of the DCC RPG versus regular D and D, right? Mm-hmm. Fiend is always, I would absolutely say Steam Folio would fit right in the DC universe yes. more than it fits in AD&D universe, right? I mean, it, it just does. It's got more of that wild, crazy, bizarre, on-the-edge stuff. But and you can recall, bring that back to AD&D, yeah. for sure. If I recall, James, you kind of said this in, in your podcast when you were covering the Fiend Folio. Is it's got a lot of monsters that would do better to be the such and such instead of a such now, and such i think about i think this about i think this about every monster book <laughs> but i think it more more than any of them i think this about the fiend folio way too many monsters are genericized right so the classic example i use is one from the fiend folio which is the umplebee the idea that there is this species of weird little crying dudes that weave nets out of their own hair <laughs> is bizarre but in a fairy tale context you meet this one weird little guy and his name is Umplebee makes perfect. It's fine. Right. We're going into an enchanted forest and there we met Umplebee and he's a needy, like little weirdo and he makes a net. Okay, cool. So for me, that fairy tale feeling, which is quite different from the sort of heroic fantasy vibe Mm -hmm. that AD and D was even by this point, moving very strongly toward. Right. Which I don't think is where it began necessarily but was very much becoming its identity, even by this point. Mm-hmm. Uncle B fits very awkwardly into. But he fits, he's right at home in DCC. He's right at home in, uh, um, in like the Dolman Wood or somewhere, right? Uh-huh. Like, mm-hmm. he, like, oh, a weird little goblin who has a strange fixation and will give you a reward if you interact with his bizarre habits in some way. Yeah, <laughs> or like, um, and there's lots of examples of that. Um, you know, um, I'm I'm trying to think of some good ones here. Uh, not the Akairai. Um, but like, yeah, the um the frost man, like if the frost man was just frost man, it'd be a lot better monster. Um, you know, or uh, uh like the skeleton warrior. So the skeleton warrior is close to my heart because he's in that episode of the DD cartoon. Yeah. Um, which I which every time I turned that show on <laughs> as a kid, 
it was always that same episode. One. I've seen yeah. it three times. Like, I saw it three times in a row. Um, I don't ask me why, but you know, but he's he's like he's a character with a specific history and a, like a tragic backstory. It's weird that there's a whole army of him, but he works great as an individual. Uh huh. So I do think that, the, but this is something that you get as well in any of these guys who come from uh, scenarios, right? The Kuotoa are a little bit like this. Like the Kuotoa are great monsters. They're fine. Everybody loves the Kuotoa. But they're a hundred percent unnecessary in a game that has as many different hostile fish people as AD&D <laughs> does, right? Yep. I mean, it's It's got plenty. Um, but, uh, but I don't know, you know, it, uh, it, it, I think I think um, individualizing monsters uh, is a, uh, and I think also that fits maybe the aesthetic a little better. Like um, the the fiend folio's interior art, anyway, is a lot more horror-y than uh, than it is fantasy e mm-hmm. in a way. Like even the cute little fire newts are seen in the midst of like pillaging a settlement and burning all its buildings to the ground. In an absolutely fantastic illustration that looks like it belongs on a stoner's dorm room wall <laughs> rather than in, uh, you know, rather than in a monster book. Like, I, I love those little guys. Don't get me wrong. But um, there's also a big trench in the middle, a big, a big wadge of monsters here that are just kind of who cares. Um, the hook horror is the most obvious example. It's big and it's strong and it hits you. It has nothing to recommend it compared to another serves no purpose i mean it's just, right. it's just it's just blah you know or yeah. um or uh you could say the same thing about a lot of the um you know i uh, the, the, this is my like the world doesn't need any more one hd humanoids um like there's a lot of just kind of uh mook fight monsters um and a lot of that comes out of uh now i mean one could say that about the bully wugs but I love my froggy boys. So <laughs> see, I, I'm, not... I, I'm that way with the hook horrors. I mean, I know that I know, you know, there's nothing special about them, but just the aesthetic and this, this idea of something who's only appendage, uh, only grasping appendages are big, deadly hooks. So, you know, and it's flailing about, you know, coming out of the darkness. Uh, I, I, don't I know. have, a th- I have two theories about the hook horror. One is that I, 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 like, I wonder if this is a monster that comes from a miniature. Um, that someone sculpted a weird looking monster and went, Hey, what's this? Um, uh, I, I mentioned earlier the tiger fly, by the way. Ian, let me send it right. The tiger fly out with somebody else, Mike Ferguson, maybe. Um, anyway, uh, but uh, and the other is that the hook horror is meant to look like Gigan from Godzilla versus Megalon, uh, um, who also has big hooks for hands and kind of like a beaky face. Um, I probably a rubber, rubber miniature from China somewhere out there, and somebody, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think it's not impossible. Uh, because it, it, the timeline works. Um, I, I go back to it. That's just that's one of those mechanic monsters. It just it's. And, you yeah, know, the well, I mean, it's like you it's know? like all these variant trolls in this book, right? Yeah. Like the giant troll fills this kind of like challenge gap. What if you wanted a troll-like monster that could fight higher-level parties? You know, well, what if you had wheels? Then you'd be a tea cart, right? Like, who cares? Um, you know, it's a bit, but that's but that's in every DD monster book. Monster yeah, Manual 2 is neck deep in oh, yeah. boring variants on existing monsters. You 100%. know, how yeah, how many hags does one need? Well, more than you had, apparently. I think, um, I think you kind of nailed something on there. Right? Where where Fiend Folio is was traditionally thought as, as a bizarre book, Monster Manual 2 is fairly pedestrian boring 
book. Um, yeah. But so again, I like I said, just go back. I think I think actually Themefolio is more useful today than it was when it came out. I, I, it's just kind of the way I look at that book. I mean, I'd be more like I said, if I was using if I was playing DCC, I would. I would grab that book all the time because it just seems to fit the genre of that game better. And, and several other games. I mean, I'm not real familiar with Mork Borg. I mean, would it work? Seems like it's got that same I, kind of vibe. Some maybe? aspect of its sensibility, know. yeah. Like, I think that's I think that's a good a good thought, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's weird so, to me that that you're separating these all out. Um, in a, it it feels very odd to me. And I feel sort of like um, all these stories of uh, of wine tasters that when you blind them and and put the bo- uh, bottle in a paper bag they can't tell a hundred dollar bottle of of red wine from a ten dollar <laughs> bottle of white wine because um, I feel like I mean I I can't even separate uh, I mean I can separate them um, mm-hmm. like I, it's just, I feel like it's all this like big mushy thing of you know DCC and Workborg and D and D and you know Five E and BX and I understand that they are not the same thing and that there are differences in feel and that we play them with different expectations, but it feels like it's all like just like tiny gradations on you know there's this huge world of stuff out there. And and we're like in this little little yeah. quarter, being like, no, no. <laughs> it's just very, yeah. It's just variations on personality, right? It's the and same. I, it's the same RPG, but it's just variations on personality. That's that, that's all. I think that 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 my position is maybe sim- more similar to yours, Edwin, which is why Feedfolio appeals to me a little more, um, because uh, I, in, in particular, I don't think of a D and D or any version of D and D as having. Well, or I didn't think, as I said earlier about Creature Catalog, maybe, you know, I'm starting to come around on this, but I I certainly have never thought of different versions of D&D as particularly having uh, those kinds of distinct personalities. Like, to me, AD&D doesn't have a genre, right? Right. Like, it's just fantasy. It's it's cut me off one standard length of fantasy role-playing game, (laughs) and I, but that's because I don't care about, like, I don't care about the Forgotten Realms, I don't care about when I think about the different game systems, I don't simultaneously think about the different worlds that other people might associate with those, uh, with those systems. But I now, think now at I'll the same say, time... Oh, okay. go on, Luke. Well, I was just going to say, so I just came off a project where I wrote this big epic 5th edition game and, and the monsters and things I designed for it had to be fifth edition monsters as far as you know the rule sets and and the feel and the project i'm finishing right now is a a, a mutant crawl classics you know dcc monster book and i've got to say that like as a designer that was two different hats and um it didn't have to be but but really for the customer i think it did or at least that was the expectation that you know there there are definitely a lot of game differences like you know 5e monsters won't kill you or whatever like i mean we can make whatever stereotypes but you know there there are definitely (laughs) sort of mechanical differences mechanically especially because like your your mcc monsters it's really big on having like oh you know kind of like you know we're talking about here with with rules that are baked into the monster you know the monster's gonna do some weird stuff here's some cool little subsystems sub tables and stuff uh and you know there's a little bit more gonzo factor that we want to see here uh this you know some it helps if it can have something about it that you know makes the the player giggle a little bit but isn't so goofy as to make the whole you know scene fall flat 
Right. Uh, the AD&D stuff, you know, we're wanting something more, you know, celestials, more like tied into this, you know, extensive backdrop of a story, something that, you know, isn't going to kind of, you know, suddenly pull a person out of the context of the, of the campaign world that they're in. Mm. Um, I was sort of, I was trying to imagine, and you know, there's no way to do this experiment because we all just know too much, but I was sort of imagining taking Fiend Folio and Monster Manual and cutting them all up and asking somebody to sort them out so you you decide was this fiend folio or was this monster mm -hmm. manual um either by so, the creature or by the art and obviously if you know the artists that yeah. you know whatever but if you were I just think, if you're oh I, I see i think i think there are certain trends that are very noticeable right like i think if you like it's a safe bet there's only a few exceptions that if you find something that's like dog right that's <laughs> right that's the monster manual now right. there's there's exceptions. Bat comma giants in the fiend yeah, folio. You know. here, yeah. How'd they miss um, that one? Yeah. 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 Weird, right? There's <laughs> and there's not one but two bats, comma giant in the fiend folio, because the doom bats in there too. Yeah. Um, but uh the um but no, I agree. I think that there's actually a substantial amount of overlap. Like the Grimlock could absolutely be in Monster Manual, the Measle, um, you know, the Flind. Like if you told me that Flins were just a sub-entry in the null entry, sure, why not? Right. Um uh probably a bunch of other ones i this is this is a i have a category here that says boring humanoid um <laughs> you know if you told me ogrelons were in the monster manual or norkers um uh fire newts dire corbies crab men oh crab men are a bit weird but like <laughs> you know they're seized with an incessant lust for silver you know <laughs> like crabs <laughs> crabs love silver um i've got to assume that that comes from something that it's there's a shipwreck pirate treasure it's the tale of a hey or something so uh chris newton of uh, mega dumbcast and i did a season um now lost because mega dumbcast has gone off the air i have the files but i'm waiting for chris's permission to re-upload them um in which we did weird D, D monsters and adapted them to like modern urban fantasy and I intentionally picked like the, the weirdest and most difficult ones. Like, so we did the crab man, the seafall, the screaming devil kin, uh, the skeleton warrior. That was easy. It's just an old gunslinger. It's whatever. Uh, the skulk, a lot of fiend full creatures in there because I intentionally wanted things that were a little bit goofy. Um, but yeah, there are some that are just kind of, I, I definitely take your point. Uh, Bill, I, I do get what you're saying, which is that like I, I agree with you that if I were running a D, an AD&D game in 1981 and I was like, hell yes, more monsters. My players are so bored of fighting gnolls. And what I got was the club neck. <laughs> I'd be like, I don't know about this. I also feel like <laughs> yeah. the A, the A chapter is not a good, like you open that thing and you get the Akairai <laughs> and the Adherer and the yeah. Algoid and the Aliax. And you're like, what is this nonsense? <laughs> So I, I'm coming at it right from my my my, my stance on Folio and my my suggestion of like how I would do it. I, mm -hmm. I I'm coming at it and I'm talking to people who are of my mindset. I'm not talking to people who are of other who like the Folio. If you like the Folio, you're not. He's what not I'm talking to you. That's I'm all I'm saying. Yeah. If you like the yeah. Folio, I'm not talking to you. That's what I'm <laughs> yeah. hearing here. <laughs> well, that's people. It's pretty close. Because, yeah. Unfortunately, I have some friends that really love the Folio, and I, I don't. I don't know how we're still friends. I just exactly. You just gave up. But, we were uh, friends for like ten but, years, and we we're just like, yeah. it's over. <laughs> so, so I think that's 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 kind of where my perspective on this is coming from. Like, if if you don't love the Folio, right? If you're a, 
of a different generation or a different outlook on the future from way back. And, and you're thinking, you know, I would, I'm just never going to pick up this book because it's never going to do anything for me. I do think there are uses for it today where there were, you might not have had a use for it in 1981, right? Or 1982, because it just was something that just didn't work for us, right? And so I think that's how I'm trying to look at it. And, and that's where my positive spin is. If you haven't picked that book up in a long time, there's a lot of stuff you can do with that book that isn't necessarily your classic Greyhawk campaign AD&D, right? Mm-hmm. Where it, it, there's a lot of stuff in there that it just is doesn't really work real well with that 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 thematic kind of game but it can work in other games that a lot of people are playing today uh such as uh dcc or you know so so it's probably more that i I can't think of i keep Um, looking at this this list of creatures though and i'm like man these just like they just fit right in i mean like you know the karyotid <laughs> columns the iron there are i mean it's so yeah. much in here yeah. that just like i, I would say this if you looked in this book and you said okay you had a choice to go back in history and make this not exist or exist and you look at some of the monsters that came from this book not even necessarily the ones that are popular but but just in in whole it's got so many really cool monsters in it even if you had to wade through the trash, I, I definitely right. am glad it exists and, and I'm happy to have owned it. Right. I, I definitely yeah, I mean, think that, uh, that, that I, I think, I think Edwin's point is really good, which is that we, that we tend to think about this book in terms of a relatively small number of standout monsters. Um, but, but they're so weird that they kind of, you know, it's like we only put a small number of like super hot chilies in this, you know, in this dish. Well, chili, yeah, but, well, I guess I guess the the we lost. Uh, oops, the sorry, Bill. He doesn't okay. like Fiend Folio that much. Um, <laughs> you know, it, like, but if you get one in your mouth, you're going to notice it, right? So, yeah, and I agree. If you if you turn this book open to a random page and you find like the Poltergeist, okay, or the Apparition. Yeah, well, I'm wondering or... though if Monster Manual, you know, Monster Manual set the stage, so nothing in it by definition, nothing in it could be weird because it was the book, but yeah. Boy, is there some weird shit in there. And like, I feel like if they come out in the reverse order, maybe that's the better conversation, right? Uh, You know, when we look at some of the stuff in Monster Manual and be like, man, there's so much stuff in here that would just never fit in my AD&D campaign because it's just (laughs) wacky. So boring, so normal. There's all this boring stuff. There's weird stuff. There's, you know, this this is too over the top for my table, whatever. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's sort of an interesting uh, and and useless in the end uh, mind exercise. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no i mean i get what you're saying though like what are, this is this is the sorolla argument right this 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 article that i refer to right, says right, right. uh quote um uh da, 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 um if we separate innovative creations from the well-known natural animals and western fantasy creatures that populate the monster manual the fiend folio's monster section and the monster manual's creations are surprisingly similar in tone let's see if um yeah. uh, and I, I mean, maybe you agree with that or not, but I, that, that's that's what I recommend. Somebody else has said it in any case. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I know we need to move on, um, but just to, as a service to our listeners, uh, would you guys be able to, if we did like just around the table once and maybe mention a monster that you think is, you know, maybe not looked at as, you know, being as good as what it really is or, or a monster that you could fix by a certain way? Is that, and I can edit this out if it's not a thing. Do we think we can do that? I think so. Edwin, would you? Uh, well, I just away? noticed. A... I hadn't. I hadn't noticed this before, but I just noticed, and it blows me away. Because I mean, who would ever put this in a monster book? But there's somebody decided that elf, <laughs> like this weird ass creature that out of left field 
has come into us with through, with, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but I did literally just notice that elf is an entry in the theme folio. Here. Yeah, because of the expanded drow. It's the it's the vault right, address. Right, drow. Yeah, and I drow did, I did, rhymes uh, with cow. Yeah, right. Interesting that that's Not under. Uh, it's interesting that it's under e because we. I feel like we have because uh, I actually point, read that yeah. entry um, earlier today, and I was. I was all excited because I read it, I read it, I read it, I read it, and all good. And it wasn't until the the last sentence uh, that we learned that this underground creature has black skin and and light hair, um, and that that actually kind of surprised me too. That you know because that's obviously a huge uh, part of the both the mythology no, and the the issues people have. Um, and uh, and I was sort of wondering if that I guess do they all have a little description at the end? I guess they they don't. But typically, typically an entry ends with a description of the coloration. There's a little oh, yeah, every yeah, here we go. Tra yep, traditionally yep. an entry a monster entry ends with a miniatures painting guide. <laughs> right. Yeah. Most most of them have that. That's true. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. No, many do. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, no, I, th I think um, so. I uh, if if people don't mind me going first, go for it. Um, so I think I, I don't even know that this is rehabilitating. I think you just have to look at this monster. This is the one that I mentioned earlier, the Bloodworm Comma Giant. Um, so the Bloodworm Comma Giant, uh, they're slow moving. They're uh, mistaken in dim light for a moss covered boulder. They're not aggressive. They might uh, bite you if you step on them. Um, and uh, otherwise, and, and that you can repel them with fire, right? So they're a very classic dungeoneering monster. They're, they're more of a puzzle about like how to get through a particular room. And so therefore I think they're kind of easily overlooked, but I love those kinds of hazard monsters because of what they say about the way uh, that you use a dungeon, right? Like I can't wait, and I'm only saying this because I play a ranger um, in, the, <laughs> in the game that I'm in at present. And I'm, because rangers are not very good, I'm always looking for ways to make my like knowledge of animals and, you know, my mobility stuff, like kind of actually do something. Um, not that my team is bad at that, but I just, it's a challenge. It's, it's, you know, it's a fun challenge. Um, but I love the idea of like shooting an arrow into a crowd of uh, bad guys, you know, doing the like wiggly fingers at them and then running for my life into the room that the bloodworms comma giant are in and using the fact that I know they're there to like not step on any of them and then just wait. Um, <laughs> and I think that, uh, I think that that kind of stuff, that kind of like, I love that creative use of uh, the environment in dungeoneering games. It's it's the thing that redeems the dungeon as a concept mm -hmm. for me. And I think, unfortunately, you know, like I don't have anything against 5e as a game. Like everybody, you know, it's cool to not be into it, but whatever. I don't, you know, I play it and I enjoy it and I think it's fine. However, these 5e scenarios that the big publisher puts out, lordy me, um, they are, you know, they expect you to go to a place, fight the guys using your tool on your character sheets, go to another place, fight the guys. Mm -hmm. And that is so limiting to me. There's so much more fun stuff that can be done, uh, whether that means like talking to people and finding out what they want, or whether that means leading a bunch of, you know, lizard men into a uh, room full of bloodworms, comma, giant. So the humble bloodworm, comma, giant, which is just lying there minding its own business, uh, waiting to feed once a week, uh, I think is actually a great monster. If you think about what a clever player character could do with it, and then encourage your players to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's like a great example a... of a, a non-combat monster, like a, a monster that is it's not just about hey, go in there and fight it, but 
it's you know it's it's got atmosphere to it it's intrigue you know what's this about what are we going to do try different things yeah and i think that's really important that a, a monster, an monster has that kind of thing yeah yeah. Well, I, I was gonna say i feel like that is the sort of thing that comes out almost organically from the sort of mcc weirdness like when you have when you just sort of stick weird stuff in there players will take them and do something really cool with it not all the time but you know that because they, they are there it gives the opportunity for people to do some uh some shenanigans uh as uh i remember now the article we i read we read but uh uh james you are nodding as if you remember the same article i don't remember the article um, i just love shenanigans. You know, okay it was it was basically an article about the love value of shenanigans and how to i think it was a it was one of these youtube videos anyway but in how to um how to create dungeons and creatures and rooms that inspire players to do creative things so i think uh i will I, I i'm choosing more or less randomly here but i have happened upon the gold bug <laughs> and uh which is a i, I think it would would fall into the category of a creature that exists because of the preponderance of adventurers <laughs> um, but i'm imagining a bartender the, their tip jar and that they have some pets that are their gold bugs and you know that that allows them to leave their tip jar on the counter uh in the in the bar and uh <laughs> you know that because it's their it's it's the bartender's pets you know they can reach in there anytime whatever maybe they have to throw a little food in there so you see the bartender throw a little bit of food in their pet jar in their uh, tip jar and then reach in and grab you know a few gold <laughs> and a few silver to, to make change because some big party came in so and I think, then the thief I think steps be up some to the fun plate. There. Yeah. Sorry, what? Yeah. Oh, I just said, and then the thief steps up to the plate. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And then, and then you get somebody like, you yeah. distract the bartender. I'm going to steal some gold here. Like, okay, <laughs> uh, fun. <laughs> if you're stealing the bartender's tip jar, you deserve everything you get. Like <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <just laughs> call yourself an adventurer. <laughs> what do you got for us, Lou? Uh, so uh, one of the ones on my list... Um, and it's, I tried to pick ones that a lot of people hate, but I think are just underlooked. Uh, the Enveloper. Uh, so this is like basically monster putty that uh, swarms around a person and uh, suffocates them. Yeah. I think, you know, this is one of those the Enveloper situations where you have you have the wizard's lab and you have set up for combat, you know, whatever. You have some monster in there that the players are going to fight, make it something they can defeat easily, but have as part of your, your pros during the fight that, you know, all these beakers and, and flasks are getting knocked over. And then after the fight's over, the players notice some strange smells. They see the liquid bubbling. And then you got your enveloper that, that rises out of the goo from the, the mix mash of uh, <laughs> magic stuff. And I think it's a fun encounter. It's, it's a thinking man's yeah. encounter because it wraps around the person. And then you, you can't really hurt it because if you hurt it, you're hurting the guy. And uh, it, I think it's a good a good little, you know, trickster monster. It's fun, also a little encounter. The, the the illustration is very simple but hideous like <laughs> just the thought of this like play-doh-y you're being smothered to death by mr blobby don't like it it's yeah, he's smiling dumb. while he's doing it too he's yeah it's big old doll like smile. face Ugh. don't care for it <laughs> all right 
Well, well Bill no, had what to about step you, away. Bill? What do you think you've been saying? Well, <laughs> well, Bill, book, well actually, I don't think there's anything in this book that uh, that's redeemable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had to step away. He'll be back, so we'll have to catch him in a little bit. Um, any final thoughts on the Fiend Folio? Um, it all? Uh, I'm yeah. Go ahead. I, I I I mean, I respect the like. It's certainly true that if you are running a more or less mainstream AD&D first edition game, uh, the Fiend Folio may be of little use to you. I would submit that there are not very many people in 2022 of whom this is true. Um, so uh, I think in terms of inspiration, it's really worthwhile. And it, I mean, now I am saying this within the context that I got my Fiend Folio for like eight pounds, right? That, you know, it, it, older D&D books have gone up in their collectible value. But uh, the Fiend and, Folio. <laughs> not, well, and, no, the Fiend Folio maybe as much if not more because as really Bill pointed out there weren't as many of them i don't know in the uh, states i see these things on used bookshelves by you know half a dozen and uh well i mean they're if, not free but they're you know compared you, to most if of the you, others that... if you do then snap it up um <laughs> you know I'm, I'm not saying because it has resale value i'm saying if you find it at a reasonable price or i believe the pdf's not expensive mm. um you know uh, i think it's definitely worth reading i think there's it, like you'll either get that kind of like fun little what is this moment or you'll find some stuff that actually might be inspirational there's also a bunch of boring variant trolls i won't lie <laughs> i was uh, i was pretty happy to uh to come back to it because this came out i guess right before just right before i slowed down a lot uh, i i never owned a physical copy of this book um so the the chance to sort of visit it was uh was pretty fun that was, uh, was nice. I gotta say, I never bought it as a kid because by the time I was really getting into D&D, everything was orange spined. And so I was mm -hmm. told myself, well, I'll, I'll wait till they come out with a new cover before I get that. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, it never did. So never, never got a second version. Yeah. But uh, all right. Well, I uh, hate to tell you, James, but this brings us to the last part of the show. Mm. Geek credits. The talent competition. <laughs> Do you have any geek credit? All right, so the way this game works, and, and today we don't have an at-home winner, which is saddening my heart, but hopefully uh, hopefully next episode we'll, we'll get some of y'all to write into us again. Um, but the, the, the deal is this. To get your geek credit, or to maintain it, I should say, you have to answer three out of five multiple-choice questions correct. Now, these right. questions have been chosen uh, based on role-playing game stuff but then also based on a few of the things we asked you about about like your personal interests and whatnot okay so uh, i don't Fingers know uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll kind of bounce back and forth here edwin you want to lead uh, want me sure to lead? i'm gonna lead off i think with a uh with a softball for us here uh we'll find out uh so uh multiple choice is what mm -hmm. we're going for here what horrifies the protagonist of pickman's model uh, a, a painting of a hideous demon drawn from life. B, he discovers his friend is a cannibal. C, the realization that his ancestors were monsters. Or D, he stumbles across a painting of himself with a monstrous entity. Uh, so that's that's A. Um, he discovers that the uh, he, he finds the photo reference for the painting. By God, Elliot, it was a photograph from life. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Although those are all 
plausible all, Lovecraft. I mean, oh, some, many of these are actually Lovecraft story. I mean, okay, I was no. gonna say the one about the guy realizing that he was a descendant of the creature. That's a Lovecraft thing, right? Because I, sure. I kind of remember yeah. that story. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. M- more than one, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, I'm gonna do a little community theater here. Uh, so my my question here is the monster. Who am I? So here we go. I, I make you fall asleep. I have a dog-like appearance. I'm a shapeshifter. Who am I? Your choices are werewolf, selkie, werejackal, or jackal were. Well, there's no such thing as a werejackal, so it has to be jackal were. Correct on the second half, but I believe there is actually a jackal were. No, there the, is the a jackal were. Yeah, there, but you're I, right. I'm it's the werejackal. Jack- well, okay. No, I, I said I that haven't... backwards. I, I haven't got to it yet. There I haven't got to it yet. Where jackal, but you're right. It's the jackal where. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Two points. Two points. You just gotta get one more. A jackal that can turn into a person. Um. All right. You want to go? Or I, I, I will go. This one is. Uh, this is not uh, multiple choice, but I think still falls in the softball category. We'll find out. So <laughs> a poem. Like a Sorry, poem by H.P. Lovecraft called mm-hmm. "Waste Paper." A poem of profound insignificance mm-hmm. is a satire of what more famous poem? Uh, the Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. There you go. Um, oh. Nobody <laughs> home ding, ding, ding. in the shanty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's yes. three. Uh, you, you got it secured now. Now it's just a matter of putting that icing right. on the cake. Here. Now we're just playing for pride. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, we were just playing for pride previously. We're just but, you playing know, for pride before, much, too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, this is another monster. Who am I? Uh, let's see. I am driven to seek out and strangle an opponent. I will stalk them quietly to do so. My skin is mottled, and I can't be turned by any holy means. Who am I? Is it the skeletal warrior, meanlock, assassin bug, or measle? <sighs> See, it's, the problem is the mean lock and the measle are right next to each other in the book. <laughs> One of them is a strangler. And I think it's the mean lock, but I'm not sure. But I'm going to say mean lock. Oh, you were so close. It was it's the, the measle. measle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they're right I, next to each other. And I forget which one is which. They're in the same episode of Monster Man, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but that measle like aesthetic of having like the parted hair that comes out flat and pointy mm-hmm. on the sides. There's like four or five creatures in that book that have that same look. It's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. Russ Nicholson's got some things he likes to return to, I guess, if that's who it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh well, I couldn't. I didn't get them all. Never mind. All right. What's the you last? Got, one? You got one more. You got, uh, yeah. Edwin, you you want to do it? Or you want me to? Doesn't matter. I, I'm really enjoying these. Uh, who am I? So oh. if you got another one of those? Well, I want to listen to it. That was the last. Uh, <laughs> who am I? I got a I got a uh, fu- uh, funerary question here. Uh, you know, you you told us that you you kind of experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're not. I'm sorry. That, that was kind of your area of, of uh, study or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. British uh, funerary. Am I saying that right? How do you say that? Funerary? Funerary. Funerary uh, archaeology, yes. Um, so uh, the question is, what is a like way? L-Y-K-E. What is a like way? A lich way. Oh, it's um, pronounced lich. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, I saw yeah, it spelled yeah. that way and I saw it spelled this way also. Okay. Well, okay. At, at least I've always heard it. I've always heard it as yeah. a lich. Well, way. yeah, I, I just um, didn't know if it was a different pronunciation, you know, because there's also a lot of other versions of the same thing. But yeah, ahead, well, uh, doesn't sound yeah. like you need the, uh, the the multiple choice here. Well, no, no. Give me, give me, <laughs> give me, give me the multiple okay. choice. All right. So uh, 
Is it A, the entrance to a tomb beneath a castle? B, a gated structure guarding a body that is lying in view? C, roads used to primarily take the dead from, one, from the town to the cemetery? Or D, a process of throwing bodies over seawalls into the ocean? Uh, so it is uh, C, the path by which yeah. uh, you, you go from the place to the cemetery. Lich here, and it's not in, in its original sense, just meaning body. Interesting. Uh, right. So Lich just means a dead body. Uh, the D&D &D monster Lich comes from the fact that there's a, I think there's a Clark Ashton Smith story in which he refers to a an undead sorcerer as a hideous Lich or something like that. You know, a something Lich, mm -hmm. as one might yeah. say, a corpse. But then people who read the story and didn't know what Lich meant uh, just went. Type of monster. Uh, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. In old. It, and so it may be like way. I don't know. In, in I, modern English, in old English, L-I-C is Lich. Um, this yeah or lichaman L I L I or, I'm sorry L Y K would be pronounced the same. Oh well, that... no, then it's probably Likway and or Likway okay. in that context. I don't know. It may be pronounced differently in different places as well. But also the uh, the like the, the the sort of gate at the front of a cemetery is a also. is a lich gate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always always thought that was an interesting thing. You know, obviously it's more of a European thing. I, I don't even know if we have any uh, of those kind of things here in the United States. These roads that were used for funerals and whatnot, but. Uh, and they, they have like, I, I guess, like stones at them ever so often where you could put the coffin down and all that. Yeah, that's the theory, right? Um, so there are American equivalents. Well, I don't they're not. It's not fair to say they're equivalents. But so in the 19th century in America, like in Europe, you get these um, uh, the relocation of urban cemeteries to areas outside the city. So the, the only example I really know that much about is San Francisco, where bodies were moved to uh, the nearby town of Colma. So if you're ever in like the Colma Daily City region of the San Francisco Bay Area. Huge cemeteries everywhere, um, much bigger than you'd think the town would have, and that's because they're full of dead bodies from San Francisco. But supposedly, and I don't know if this is true, but supposedly there was a special train for taking the bodies to uh, to the cemetery because it was kind of, it would be kind of creepy for the regular commuters to be on the train <laughs> and then a couple of cars full of dead bodies. But the so obviously train. like 19th or early 20th century America, of course they have the same thing. And of course it's a steam train. Uh, a, a lonesome yeah. train rolling through the night full of nothing but dead bodies. And if you can't oh, write a scenario, awesome. scenario. That, yeah. oh man, um, wow. you know, what are you doing? So yeah. Okay. Well, four out of five. That's not too bad. I, I feel like, awesome, I, I feel like I've defended my dignity at least mostly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, James, I, I really appreciate you coming on the program and well, thank uh, you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, listeners, you, you got to check out his podcast if you're not already uh, subscribing to it. It's it's fantastic. Uh, both both the uh, 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 Patreon deities and the the uh, Monster Man podcast. Uh, I've just learned an infinite amount and been inspired a lot by those in some of the, the scenario writing I've been doing. Um, and if and you then, haven't, if you have not gotten in on his uh, Patreon, it is a, an amazingly great deal now that there are three years of patrons that's, that's true yeah we're up to we're uh, up to like 130 or so uh yeah. back episodes yeah so yeah i mean you, listen if you want to if you want to join now for a month like you probably couldn't listen to it in a month but you know what i mean like, no not at all <laughs> yeah jo join like um it is uh yes it, it only gets more valuable so um yeah thank <laughs> well, you don't and, wait and, and is don't... it still at the five dollar level they can they can name a monster and you'll do a yeah special so yeah, yeah yeah the 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 yes. the 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 five dollar patron uh level yeah you get a, a special episode we just did one on death well i don't know when um this, this episode is coming like, out yeah it should be out like but, wednesday of next week 
Yeah. Okay, so our next episode, I think, is going to be on uh, Kitsune, the sort of uh, Japanese fox trickster spirits. Um, but we have had past episodes on everything from uh, Death Knights to aliens to uh, babies. So one was about <laughs> babies, um, which was a grim business. But, you know, like, <laughs> I am merely the driver. The passenger says where they want to go. I'm and the that's driver of the lich train. Um, you know, uh, but so, yeah, it's not just it's not just D&D monsters. People write to me. Uh, someone asked me to do Godzilla. Uh, you know, we just uh, if it's if it's conceivably a monster, uh, we cover it. So um nice. uh it's uh yeah it's it's been a lot of fun please don't judge me by the first hundred or so episodes i was still figuring out what i was doing i, I don't know man <laughs> it hooked me uh first episode out so well i'm glad you enjoyed it all right thank you so much for being on uh folks thank you for listening um bill never came back i, I assume he's okay he just said he had to step out for something so uh, we'll have to catch him on the next episode that uh, uh you know uh, harangue him for for what his favorite fiend folio monster is make him fess up on it uh at any rate uh happy gaming folks we'll catch you again in about a month um again james thank you so much edwin it's a pleasure talking with you as always good talking to you thanks james talk to y'all later bye bye everybody all right thanks james you've been listening to this old dungeon Copyright 2022. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are, well, hey, we're just a bunch of bullshitters, so you do the math. If you have any requests or any correspondence you'd like to send, send it to thisolddungeon at gmail.com. Have a wonderful day.